This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. Hi, LSPod fans. It's JR here. Burt's Babes, Hoddle's Heroes, even Decanio's Dozens. We've had some iconic lineups in our history at Swindon, just like the legendary menu at McDonald's. Parkin' or Austin? Sweet curry or barbecue? Why not get a McNugget share box to enjoy the debates with your mates? And thanks to book delivery, every drop-off can be a home win. Order now on the McDonald's app and you can also get rewards points too. No one wants to drop points at home, and with tasty rewards to earn, you won't be missing out. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus. Rewards registration required. Points only on menu items. Delivery fee and terms apply see mcdonalds.com the talksport fan network is proudly teaming up with free for mental health awareness week this year we understand that the journey as a supporter isn't always smooth sailing but rest assured you're not alone there's a vast network of fellow fans who share your passion and may be experiencing similar challenges honesty is key in any relationship if your friend asks you how you are feeling tell them honestly if you're going through a difficult time let them know Opening up about how you are feeling can really make a difference. After all, they are your mates for a reason. Let's all take a moment to talk more than football. Remembering the life of Alan McLaughlin, who sadly passed away this week. To many Swindon fans, Macca is an absolute legend, and rightly so. He scored the winning goal at Wembley in 1990, and who knows what his Swindon career would have been like had Town not unfortunately been demoted. He's the first Swindon Town player to represent the club at a World Cup finals, having played for the Republic of Ireland at Italia 90, and also he would be the first player Swindon would ever sell for a million pounds when he left the club to join Southampton. Later, he would go on to have a fantastic career, becoming a Republic of Ireland hero thanks to his goal that took them to the World Cup in USA in 1994 and be an absolute legend at Portsmouth. He'll also be fondly remembered by many, many young footballers for his exploits as academy manager at Swindon. This is just an episode to really just show our appreciation and our memories of Macca. And I'm joined by Mark Hanrahan. Hello, Mark. Hello, Rich. Hello, everybody. Well, first of all, this is terribly sad news and our thoughts must go out of course to Alan McLaughlin's friends and family. I mean I, I've, I've been aware of the news literally for the last couple of hours I don't mind you know saying and I mean firstly clearly we're, go, we're going to get on to talking about some of the sort of legendary football towels you've just hinted at there and I, I absolutely absolutely share. Um, I think I, I just wanted to say that you know obviously um you know, can just massive condolences to the McLaughlin family. Um, you know, whilst we're here talking about football and our loss and football legends and so forth, obviously they've lost a father, lost a lost a husband, and I'm just so so sorry. You know, to learn about Alan's passing. Um, you know, he he obviously transcended the pitch, not just onto the coaching side, but just you know his presence in amongst the fans, whether that be grabbing a a quick sort of handshake and smile in the car park after a game or bumping into him, you know, in and around the, you know, um, you know, our lovely sort of, you know, facility across the way there by the cricket ground. Uh, 
I mean, it's just desperate news. Um, this one's hit really hard, though, Rich. Like, really hard. Um, I think for me, I mean, I, I, I became a town fan right at the start of Al Mack's career with us, like literally that season. Um, and so he's he's just one of those figures that I've I've just sort of grown up with. He's just just part of the fabric, and um, you know, even even when he wasn't at the club. He created so many incredible memories in my first few seasons following town, like that golden era, Macari and Ardiles. Those those memories were a really, really sort of interesting time in my sort of development of football fandom. And and Al Mack played like just such an important role in in me falling in love with the game. Um, I mean, I, I, right, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story, Rich. I mean, I think anyone that sort of knows me or, and my following of Swindon will know that I was born as a, a you know, I'm a bit of an out, I was a bit of an outlier in South East London, you know, growing up as a, you know, surrounded by Charlton, West Ham, Mill fans. Um, I'm also a goalkeeper. Um, and so I grew up literally, you know, my idol was Fraser Digby. Um, every now and again, this, the fat crap kid that was me got kicked out of nets and that's a play out on pitch. And this is this will hopefully kind of frame my admiration for Alan Mack. I was I was appalling out on pitch, but I would always pretend to be the then great Spurs ace Glenn Hoddle or the sublime Alan McLaughlin. I mean, you know, put, just just sort of try and frame that as this kid kicking a ball around in South East London with his mates who wouldn't know one end of Swindon from you know Scunthorpe United, and. You see me bombing around the park, literally. I, I'll never forget. I used to literally. So I had one. I had a one-trick um, outfield sort of talent, which was my toe pump. <laughs> I was that bad, and I used to literally every time I'd like pump towards goal, I'd scream, "Takes a deflection." <laughs> so, um, yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, I, 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 I can't. I mean, just in terms of my my sort of you know, how much he, you know, mean, meant to me back then as a kid. Um, Yeah. I mean, I just frame it with that. And obviously it brings back a lot of, a lot of really quite poignant memories for me. Well, Alan McLaughlin is tremendously important to me as a Swindon Town fan, because he was in the first Swindon side that I ever saw wearing, of course, the number four shirt in November, 1990, a loss against Port Vale, probably one of the last games he ever played. And, I'm tremendously fond of the 12 Swindon players who featured that day and you know I monitored all of their careers and McLaughlin was was no different and that includes their backstory and something that always stood out to me in relation to Macca was Graft. This was a guy that came from the Manchester United setup at a time where you had your 11 players and your one sub and a couple of reserves and to reached the point where he was a first year pro incredible and then of course he would have to make the decision to drop down join Lou Macari at Swindon where it wasn't rosy for him to start with it took him a couple of years to really bed in uh, having a successful loan spell at Torquay United but then it was when Ozzy Ardiles came to Swindon where the Alan McLaughlin that we all know and love and talk about and remember so fondly really began to kick in. Yeah, I mean, his his book, I mean, he goes into that sort of period of his career at United and, you know, being shown the door and, 
you know, really having to sort of grit his teeth and sort of scrap his way, you know, back to the top. Um, and I mean, there's some, for anyone that's not read his book, that I think, uh, you know, a different shade of green, I would thoroughly recommend you do. And, uh, and uh, if anyone needs some life lessons, you know, on, on determination and character and putting your, putting your money where your mouth is, um, you know, he, he absolutely like exudes that. Um, you know, he, he, he talks about leaving United and essentially almost like a kind of falling out of love with, with football, you know, like, where do I go now? And, um, you know, obviously absolutely, you know, to our benefit, you know, eventually after, after a bit of a rocky start. Um, but yeah, I mean, he, he, he was a, you know, just unbelievably, tenacious um powerful uh just bundle of energy um and uh, and under uh, under it all was just this was this absolutely ridiculously classy motor um you know just do you ever remember rich seeing you would never i mean because i I can't remember you know al mac ever losing his rag on the pitch you know seeing a you know you know seeing a flash of red you know just completely losing his lid or, you know, going like doing a dirty on someone, you know, going into, you just never saw that from him, but yet he was this incredible scrapper. So, yeah. Yeah. I I completely agree, but in a slightly different way, because, you know, I went to my first game when I was seven and I don't really remember enough of Macca to talk about him as a Swindon player but I agree with all your points as a Portsmouth player because he was regularly an absolute nuisance against Swindon uh, for Portsmouth I remember one game shortly after we got relegated from the Premier League a 4-3 loss at Fratton Park and he scored two in what felt like a matter of seconds and I just remember being absolutely outraged that an ex-Swindon player would uh, do such a thing. But, you know, that was the sort of footballer he was. Yeah. Well, he was, I mean, first and foremost, he was, a, like, I guess what I'm trying to say is he was just a, just a pro wherever he went. I mean, even when things weren't working out for him at Southampton after the big money move from us, um, you know, he never threw his toys out of the pram. You know, he, again, addresses it in his book. He talks about the fact that, you know, he felt he was played out of position you know, weren't really getting the best out of him. But for someone that moved back then for what would be a huge sum of money now, um, he just sort of seemed to get on with it. And, you know, ultimately it was other people, I think, that really made the decision on, you know, on on him getting out down at the Dell. Um, but, yeah, just a pro. And the fact that, you know, like coming to an old club like Swindon where he's just so hugely well regarded and, and doing the business, you know, no nonsense, just doing the business for the team that, that you know, paying his dough. Um, yeah, it says a lot about the guy. I mean, the, the thing that struck me about that, you know, struck me about Macca was that he just had, he, you know, I mean, that eighty nine ninety team, you know, clearly, you know, we, we're all aware what happened in eighty nine ninety, and you know, the one thing that I think really sort of cements his bond with with town fans was the fact that he just, you know, he he could have left, like you said, first town player to represent, you know, sort of town at a World Cup, play in a World Cup. He could have gone on in that summer to, you know, he probably could have had a pick of clubs, but actually hung around like quite a lot of those guys did. Um, 
and and I think you know we we all have a, a bond with the likes of himself and you know lads like Fraser and you know Tommy Jones and Stigger, Colin um, Calderwood, um, yeah, you know, those guys that basically stuck it out and stuck with us going into the next season. Um, I think Macca's, Macca's bond with us was probably a little bit sort of extra special as a consequence of not moving on, Rich. I don't know how you feel about that, but he could, you know, it, having having scored at Wembley, having then gone to a World Cup, the kind of, you know, to a, to a degree, the, the footballing world's at your feet. And he sticks with us after two demotions, obviously restored on appeal. But, you know, he stuck, he stuck with us. Appreciate, I think we... I don't necessarily think Al Mack agitated for that move to the top flight to Southampton. I think that was a club, you know, typical Swindon needing to sell a player every year. Yeah, and you could say it was his commitment to the cause at that time that, you know, saves the club. For sure. And again, going back to your point about a fighting spirit, you know, let's let's go again, guys. You know, and being at the heart of that, you know, such an important player in that side, you know, let's go again. I mean, the, I t- the, the thing that I really remember about you know, the season after demotion was um, first game of the season away to Charlton at Sellers Park. And and guess who scores? You know, again, for me, banging on about my London roots, you know, that was that was my local club. Actually, ironically, Palace is even closer to where I live than than Charlton, albeit, you know, you know, Charlton, are the, the club that I always refer to as my local club. But pl- Charlton playing at Sellers Park and that 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 sort of glorious summer's afternoon and bouncing back in such a way. I mean, that that goal, that that goal and indeed that win at a time where I was 13, 14, emotionally wrecked after that summer, um, that goal and that win just hit me on so many levels. Um, obviously, the season wasn't to be, but yeah, um, it, it just seemed written in the stars it would be our Mac that would, that would notch that day. For, I don't know. I don't want to get too, you know, too personal about it, but... I've, I've said I've said to you before, like London games for me are my are my derby. So <laughs> Oxford's important, but London games for me, growing up as a town fan, are hugely important. And that was a very, very, very special moment. Um, yeah, fond memories. Wembley goal aside, what moments really stand out to you in terms of Macca's career at Swindon? Oh, do you know the memory that I th- immediately springs to mind? You'll love this. Nesta Lorenzo. He's the first person to run over and celebrate his debut goal with him. Uh, uh, Against Pompey. Yeah, wonderful stuff. I mean, just, yeah, brilliant. Um, I I mean, I... God, blimey. I mean, where do I start? I've got like a smorgasbord of moments that I could pick for Maka. Um, I think, I mean, I've just talked about it. I've probably gone a little bit previous on you, Rich, because... Like that, that that Charlton game was really, really important. Um, really important. Um, for like, I, I don't just think for me. I think you know there was a stand packed full of town fans that day. Just you know, it was such a strange mix of emotions. Talking to people heading into the ground. I mean, I was only young, but I was just trying to talk to everyone I possibly could, trying to desperately find some hope that we were going to bounce back that season after that awful, awful summer. But um, yeah, I think. Um, the uh, obviously we talked about Wembley 1990. I, th- I, I think I just remember. I tell you, I just remember sitting starey eyed watching the World Cup again. I know we talk about his town career, but just watching the World Cup, just imploring the Republic to bring him on. Um, you know, just 
Ah, oh, blimey, just such special times. I think. Um, well, that was going to be my next question, really, because again, not being able to fully appreciate the situation, being so young at the time. What was it like for you guys in terms of, you know, we've just suffered just the most awful summer with the demotion, having the glory of Wembley. And now we look at McLaughlin's achievement representing Swindon at a World Cup finals with a load of pride, and rightly so. Was that reflected in 1990 as well? Did you feel that way in 1990? Yeah, yeah, 100%. 100%. Um, so Italia 90 was a really interesting World Cup for me because my first World Cup that I remember was Mexico 86. I mean, I was nine and I, I, I was just kind of starting to hit my stride in terms of sort of following football. Um, so fast forward four years and hopefully you get a sort of flavour for what my mindset was. You know, by that time, I was well and truly immersed. I was I was absolutely sweet at that point cut me open Swindon Town red and white I would bleed the bleed the little green train I, I and obviously it had been it had been a tumultuous summer for us a hell of a season the the the, the enormous low I just remember just being feeling so desperate that I, I can't quite put into words what a kind of pride restorer it was for me at that age to, you know, to see him on the touchline, you know, bouncing up and down, you know, getting his opportunity to, you know, get on at a World Cup. And I, I mean, I must have driven all my schoolmates bonkers back then because I just remember I was just, it's what got me through, Rich. I've got to be honest, it genuinely was what got me through that summer, like from a footballing point of view. Um, you know, the fact that there was a town fan playing at the, a town player playing at the World Cup. And then, obviously, lo and behold, a few months later, I was saying, well, there were two town players playing at a World Cup and one of them was in the final. Um, it was, it was uh, yeah, I mean, it was a, it was an incredible sort of you know, time time for me personally. Um, and, you know, I'd, just like I say, as a, as a player, just, you know, I hope I'm sort of doing the, doing the guy justice, you know, just just underlines how much on like that kind of deep emotional level the you know the guy kind of means to to me the football fan you know I think there's also a lot to be said about the pride football fans naturally feel when players are represented for their country when they represent their country for the first time because the reason they're selected is because of the exploits our club and you know we're not a football club known to produce international footballers and Maka was a town and everything that he was achieving for Ireland at that stage was because of what he was achieving in the football league with Swindon and that's it's just an incredible thing and although we've had success in more recent years in a similar way with Maslowongo I think there's something that a little bit different with Maka that goes a long way with many Swindon Town fans. Yeah, one hundred percent, and and to an extent, Yasser Kasim as well in that same tournament. Um, you know, here here were guys that you know, rough diamonds, bring them in. I mean, Al, Al- Mac was very much like that, but it would, with all due respect to you know to Mass and Yasser, and I know the game's moved on and money talks, etc. But 
you're talking, I mean, just a different class of different class of player, you know, um, a, you know, he, I'm going to get pelters by, you know, fans of, of Luongo here. I really, really rated Mass. I really, really did. But there was just something about Maka. Like, I, I used that word earlier about a bond. I don't necessarily feel the same kind of bond for lads like Mass and Yasser. And I don't mean that being rude to those guys. You know, I, you know, really good servants to the club. And obviously, you know, particularly Mass obviously left and, and turned a hell of a, you know, hell of a profit for us. Um and and you know you, you you can't you can't just dismiss that offhand, but it was a it was a different it was a different era. Um, I, I don't I I just can't I don't know whether you would see a Mass or a, or a Yasser or one of those guys coming back and being held in that level of regard that 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 Mac has held in. Um, you know, there's a there's a certain affinity, you know, bond whether that was because of the Wembley goal, you know, I mentioned earlier about, I think he, he built certain bonds with us, with that goal, not leaving in the circumstances he could have. That I just don't think, I, I think what I'm trying to say is rich, that Maka casts a big shadow, you know, a, a, and I mean that in a, in a, in a really, really nice way. You know, he's a big set of boots to fill is probably a nicer way to, to put it. And I don't think anyone's ever really filled it in that respect. Um, you know, uh, yeah, um, I kind of feel I don't want to end every sentence, Rich, with a sigh and and, and sound so sound so down. But I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm I just feel so desperately, you know, deflated. And I, I tell you what, I, I'll tell you something a little bit poetic. You know, it's not. I know you you have me down as a hopeless romantic, but I was just as I was you know setting up to speak to you. I was watching the most beautiful sunset, and it just sort of dawned on me. We've had a really rocky, stormy day. Talk about, you know, an allegory for our season. And it just I'm setting up, the sky's cleared, the sun's shone, and it just dawned on me that, you know, the sun's setting on on the 4th of May, you know, as we watch the sunset on our number four. Um, you know, it just sort of hit me. Um call call me call me the old poet, but you know, there was there was something uh, there was something a little bit special about that moment. Um Yeah. Again, there's another sigh. Sorry, I don't mean to. <laughs> no, no, not at all, not at all. And I think it's a really interesting point that you raised there about, you know, why did we get this affinity with Alan McLaughlin? And of course, his goal against Sunderland will definitely be a contributing factor. But I also think, especially as we look back, it's the fact that he settled in the area, you know, he made Swindon his home. He could have easily stayed in Hampshire or moved his family down to Hampshire and never know bought a drink in a pub or or a meal in a restaurant again due to what he achieved with Portsmouth but you know he he made the region Wiltshire his family home which again I'd say that phrase goes a long way and I think I'm just as guilty as many others to you know stick the boot in on Swindon um, so often and that is perhaps unfair because there's so much nice stuff. We always talk, focus on the centre and stuff like that, but there's so much nice stuff around Swindon. And, you know, McLaughlin was a member and a proud member of that community. I think it goes a huge way. I think it goes a huge way. Um, you know, we, you know, 
you know, drop back down the formation a, a bit, you know, and we talk about, you know, one of the old, you know, he's his ex Man United alumni and Fraser Digby, you know, Fraser stayed in, you know, in and around town, um, made it his home, um, you know, not from Swindon, just like Macca. Um, you know, these, these guys, when they talk about Swindon and the town, you know, they, they, they talk, you know, there's, there's no hint of embarrassment, you know, and, and I'll tell you what, no, neither should there be, you know, as a, you know, as a, as a proud Londoner, Swindon is my adopted home. I come to Swindon, you know, for, you know, for home games, I come to Swindon to visit family. I just don't see it in the way that other people see it. And, and I, 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 I've sometimes wondered whether those guys have got, you know, a similar outlook to me. Um, you know, in the same way, some people come to London and get all starry eyed. You know, there's lots about London I just can't stand. Um, and I think it's a little bit like the, it's almost like a reverse, isn't it, of a Nathan and, and Louis Thompson scenario where they're kind of like adopted sons, you know, these guys. Whereas instead of coming up through the ranks, appreciate that both Alan and Fraser joined us at, you know, a very, very young age, but they didn't come up through the youth ranks, but they kind of, Sort of, they've sort of done that in flip reverse, um, cracking careers on the pitch, but then settled in the town and still, you know, very much, you know, kind of part of the identity. Interestingly enough, a lot of my London mates when I was growing up just assumed that those guys were um, were Londoners. Um, they just assumed that they were, you know, uh, sorry, that they were Swindonians. You know, they just assumed that they they were part of the fabric. Um, that was a that was a, a, a detached sort of London football fan perspective for you there, um, you know, ugh, yeah. Um, but no, I mean anyone. By the way, anyone listening to this, don't ever be embarrassed about Swindon and and, and being from Swindon. Like I said, I, I you know I adore the place, um, and I I can only assume without repeating myself that you know Alan felt the same way. Uh, you know, otherwise, why would you marry into the town? You know, why would you raise your family in the town? You know, why would you come back and, you know, and, and you know, and, and you know, spend your, you know, your, you know, your sort of past playing time in the town? You know, there's a reason for that. It's a decent place, mate. It's a decent place. Referee got in the way, but McLaughlin has it. Oh, deflection. And it's a goal. It's a goal, McLaughlin's. 25th minute effort, takes a deflection, and Tony Norman's luck runs out. Swindon Town 1, Sunderland 0 and the... Football-wise, you know, November 1993 is a huge moment for Alan McLaughlin's career. Of course, not with Swindon, but I think it is the moment that he'll be best remembered for by the majority, and that's, of course, the goal he scored for the Republic of Ireland against Northern Ireland at Windsor Park. And it's an evening I remember remarkably well, simply because I just remember just relentlessly talking about it at school because it was amazing that two former Swindon players had scored the two goals. Nobody gave a damn about that except me, but... I was so proud, you know, Jimmy Quinn scoring the first and then McLaughlin scoring the goal that sent the Republic of Ireland to USA 94. And I think we were all, you know, as somebody who is just relentlessly English, we were all frantically hoping to find Irish heritage that summer. But for me, unfortunately, it was not to be the case. Well, look, mate, the the clue's in the surname. Um, (laughs) 
I'm, um, I, believe it or not, again, another strange twist of fate. I mean, my um, I've, I've got a Southern Irish surname, but all my family live north of the border. So I've got, if you will, my my mum's side of the family are basically kind of essentially, there's a bit of a divide down the middle. You've got those of the younger generation that essentially moved to Swindon um, when industry in Swindon was a very different place and were very much part of that. And then you've got the older generations that actually all hail from Ballymena um, in Northern Ireland. And they're all Ballymena United fans. Um, so that was a that was a night of real, <laughs> real mixed emotions for me. Um, obviously, I, I do I do keep an eye out for our wee country, as they like to refer to it. Um, and at the same time, I've got a kind of, like I say, I've got a very proud foot south of the border as well. Um, you know, the family heritage is, is County Clare. Um, so I don't know whether I'm trying to sound the football fan version of Alan McLaughlin, <laughs> but, but no, yeah, I mean, it was, yeah, a cracking strike, wasn't it? Left peg. I remember it really, really well. Cause it kind of, if I remember, I think it was a defensive header and he sort of backpedals sort of shapes, takes it on his knee. And then with his left peg, as opposed to the right that he used for such devastating, um, effect for us, just belts an absolute swerving beauty past I believe it was Tommy Wright not the Tommy Wright but Tommy Wright um yeah god what a, what a strike that was um and yeah and and cue crazy celebration south of the border um and you know and 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 on to on to the wondrous scenes that we saw that obviously the England fan part of me didn't get to enjoy but um yeah um Incredible career he had for Ireland. I mean, I'm guessing you've heard all Jack Charlton's platitudes about Alan McLaughlin over the years. Yes, I've I've heard bits and pieces, but please do go on. Uh, what I would recommend is there there is a wonderful. Like I said, I, I heard the news about Macca's passing only a couple of hours ago, and I've pretty much been glued to Twitter ever since. Um, there is a wonderful video doing the rounds that the um, that you know the. Uh, Republic of Ireland FA have put out as a tribute to Al Mack. I, I, I couldn't, I can't, I don't think anyone can do justice trying to replicate Jack Charlton. I'd just recommend you, you go and dig it out. It's not going to be hard, but not only will you find Jack Charlton waxing lyrical, but you know, you've got Republic of Ireland legends, lads like Ray Houghton, absolutely waxing lyrical about him, having played alongside him. Um, just, just go and check it out. It's really emotional, stirring stuff. Um, you know, it was obviously such a, a, a such a close cut thing, but when you consider the kind of resources that you know Ireland had and the wonders that 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 Jack Charlton did for the Republic of Ireland, um, you know, to have Macca very much part of that, hell of an achievement. Hell of an achievement. Yes, and again, measure of the man. I think he was in pretty much every squad for about eight or nine years. And although, you know, he was capped over 40 times, could have been so many more had he played every game. But he was just so reliable and he was in that squad because he could be relied upon when needed. And you can't ask for much more than that at international football, any level of football, really. Yeah, and Rich, and, and Rich, let's 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 call it right as well. Look at that Irish squad and look at that midfield. And if I, you know, it's quite funny because you, you think of him, especially a younger generation, look at Andy Townsend and kind of sort of giggle into their hands. But 
you know, in terms of his punditry. But Andy Townsend was a hell of a midfielder. He was like the Irish version of um, Frank Lampard, you know, in his pomp for, you know, for, well, say for England, but certainly for Chelsea. Similar, similar career trajectory, a similar career path as well. I think if you if you look at Ray Houghton, you know, unbelievably talented midfielder, and then you've got you've got Roy Keane, you know, the, you, you just to kind of position Maka alongside that generation of of midfielders. I mean, that's a that you, you can't. It's it's a little bit like look at the England right back situation at the moment where we've got a you know a, a, an embarrassment of riches. You know, Macca was part of that embarrassment of riches, and 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 to Jack Charlton's point, you know, he's just one of these guys who's just dependable. Just the, like to your point, Rich, about you know, he it just knew he it just knew he wouldn't let him down. You know, if he put him in there, he knew he was going to get a shift out of him. Um, and we're talking about an international football of Swindon Town playing at World Cups and then going on and having that level of career. Oh, he's just phenomenal. If it, just think about where we're at now. It's a world away, isn't it? It's just a world away. So didn't we have it so good with Macca? Didn't we have it so good? And before we go, it would be completely remiss of me not to acknowledge the contribution he made to youth football in Swindon and surrounding area because he was the academy director at Swindon for you know, over five years and sure, you know, Swindon didn't have a huge amount of players that came through to play for the first team in that time, but there are scores of young footballers who have played good level football that can say that they were educated by Alan McLaughlin and the stuff that they gave. I mean, you just need to look around social media to see how this has impacted, this news has impacted graduates of Swindon Town's youth system and you know he has provided a lot of good footballers to football clubs in this region yeah for real I mean it, you know again having learned of the news of Macca's passing I I immediately started noticing the you know there was a good volume of 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 of, of tweets from the likes of, you know, Mass Giametti, Anthony Cheshire. And and then also there was just a whole host of names that have been associated with Macca at Swindon and away from Swindon that were all literally thanking him for the player that they've become. Um, you know, he, I, I think it would be absolutely tremendous if, you know, I mean, we've obviously... Whether the you know the current the current coaching staff have have got the same sort of high hopes for those boys that are you know currently in and around the squad that have been sort of touched by Macca, but I, I can't I can't help I, I I I just really love to see those guys progress, push on into the first team, follow his kind of coaching model. Uh, sorry, his his playing model, that tenacity, not giving up. You know, it's going to be a clean slate next season. And, you know, I hope some of that DNA is rubbed off. I really, really do. I mean, I think I'd say, I, there's a couple of things, Rich, that I, I just wanted to sort of mention before we disappeared. I mean, I I was really, I, I mean, if, you know, some people are aware that I was kind of part of the, the 442 gig at Swindon Town. And um, in in 2012, when that was kind of, you know, really sort of hitting its stride. We, um, I bumped into Macca at the NEC 
I was in a, I was in like a like a football trade show, and and Maka was given a seminar on the psychology of the penalty taker. How about that? And I had no I had no no reason being there other than me just being a massive Swindon fan. And I kind of snuck in and I sat in the front row, just literally starry eyed, staring at him. And um, I, I, there's something about when you work in football, there's something a bit corny about going up to someone and asking for their autograph. <laughs> Guess what I did? Um, I, waited, I waited for the seminar to drain out. And Macca's just sort of stood there at his podium at the front, sort of wondering why I'm still sat there. And he sort of gives me this odd look. And I just sort of wandered up to him and I just said, I just wanted to say thanks, Macca. And he looks at me and he went, oh, did you enjoy it? I went, yeah. 89.90, mate. Wembley was an absolute blast. And then he gave me this really quizzical look. And then I was like, yeah, I'm a, I'm a massive Swindon Town fan, mate. This is the first time I've had a chance to meet you. I'm just bowled over. I just wanted to come and say hi. I'm not kidding you, right? The NEC was like turning its lights off and he was still stood there talking to me, enthusing about um, Swindon Town and enthusing about that. And he, he walked me through that goal step by step. And do you know what? He told me something really nice. I think he might mention this sort of on a, to a wider audience. He said, um, if he hadn't scored that goal, he said, deflection or no deflection. He said, if he hadn't scored it, he guaranteed me that Big Duncan or Chalky would have put one of those chances away and we would have steamrolled them anyway. He said, like, it was just, it was just meant to be, um, which I thought was very special. I thought, how's this for a nice poetic way for me to finish my ramblings, mate? You know what? I, I only discovered about 30 minutes ago, just before we came on, that we he, we share the same middle name as well, Macca and I. Um, and you know I mentioned off, being oft-bullied in London about my Swindon Town links? Well, I was oft-bullied about a middle name that was Francis. Um, and that put a really wry smile on my face as the sun was setting on the 4th. Um, yeah, very um, a very kind of um, sort of poignant and hopefully that's not been taken as too cheesy way to sort of end end my ramblings about him um I can't you know I I can't believe you know I feel clearly my 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 feelings are lost and nowhere near that of of his family and like I said right at the start I just send them all my best wishes and, and love and 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 just you know what thanks for lending him to us as well you know Thanks, particularly, you know, obviously his kids were, you know, probably weren't even on the planet when he was with us. But, you know, if they are listening, and I hope they are, thanks for lending him to us. You know, your dad was a real good, you know, we're all we're all proud to have been sort of, you know, affected in a great way by the by the big by, by the wee man in, in one way or another. Yeah, I echo those sentiments completely. And as I said at the top of the pod, I can't underestimate how important a figure Alan McLaughlin is to me as just simply a football fan. Um, The image of him celebrating immediately after scoring at Sunderland is just, for me, one of the most iconic Swindon moments of my life. And just the euphoria of McLaughlin's expression when that goal goes in is just an incredible, incredible moment. And, you know, from a personal level, I spoke to him on the podcast about a year ago and he gave me, you know, 
two hours of his time, which was completely dedicated. My podcast isn't the only one he's done. He's done the same across other clubs. And he just gives you 100% in the prep, during the recording, and even discussions in the, you know, once the recording's finished. And, you know, we spoke for well over two hours on the record, and then we spoke for about half an hour off as well. And I'll never forget that because I'm, you know, a nobody. He didn't know me. He's just somebody loves talking about football to somebody who enjoys listening um, to someone talk about football. And, you know, he's one of, you know, four or five people I've spoke to where it generally had a real impact on me for days afterwards. And I am going to attach that episode on to the back of this one and, you know, if you haven't listened to it, I would say please do because he tells a story really well. And if you have listened to it, then give it another go because it's Alan McLaughlin. And, you know, I'm so grateful for what he did for Swindon in his two spells. And he will be tremendously missed, but so, so fondly remembered. And we'll leave it at that. But Mark, thank you very much for joining me just to, you know, talk about a great, great man. Thanks, Rich. Pleasure's all mine, mate. Rest in peace, Alan. What did you feel like when it went in, when you actually hit it? Do you think it was going in? Once I hit it, I mean, uh, I, it just took, just hit the foul and then it just seemed to take an eternity to go in the net. I could see Steve White trying, trying to, to get there to, to tap it in and I was praying that he wouldn't touch it. So uh, as it's hit the net, the next thing just, I just remember turning around and the lads were just on top of me then. Hello, Alan. Hello, how are you? I am very well. Very excited to be talking to yourself because you are one of the few people, number four, the first game I went to. So I'm happy, always happy to talk to footballers who were who were in that starting 11 in 1990 when I went to my first game. So thank you very much for agreeing to take part. No, no, look forward to it. Um, uh, thankfully, I think you witnessed a, a great side when you were uh, did turn up. Can I ask your age when you turned up? What was your first game? <laughs> so it was just after the good times, actually. It was in uh, November 1990. I was okay. seven years old, and that, in my opinion, was too late. But I was living overseas at the time and visiting my family, right, and, okay. and that was the beginning for me. So, uh, yeah, it was your final stages at Swindon where I, where yeah, I turned it was, up. Uh, it was a month later that I moved on. I think it was around December the 12th, so, yeah. You, well, well, you managed to still see a great side, uh, the, the team from certainly the season before, yeah. uh, in my opinion, uh, was the best all-round team I've certainly um, seen at Swindon uh, and, and, and was involved with and previously uh, and ongoing, really. I haven't seen a side better than that, if I'm honest. Fantastic. Well, we'll talk about that squad in a bit yeah. more detail a bit later on, but we'll start right at the beginning when I ask... When you were a child, who was your favourite team and who were your childhood heroes when growing up? Well, it was a bit of a strange mix, really, because um, brought up as a Man United fan, uh, a supporter. Uh, my my uncle had a season ticket. Uh, my dad was a fan. George Best, etc., were their heroes. So I, I had that influence of Man United. But my issue was I lived not more than probably, uh, well, 
I lived on Main Road, actually, opposite the ground. So uh, Main Road was right in front of my, uh, if anyone listening remembers your Main Road, the house is opposite. That's where I used to live. Uh, and about 15 minutes into the game, um, when the ticket guys were counting their money, uh, the, the turnstile operators, I used to sneak underneath and uh, get into the game. So it was a little bit strange because I was allowed to go and watch the games there, but I was a United fan. I just wanted to watch football, really. And I suppose... Um, George Best was before my time in terms of that but even the likes of Lou McCary were the hero Gordon Hill in terms of Man United players uh, Stuart Pearson etc and then I would be able to go in and watch Man City where I was watching the likes of Asa Hartford um, the big centre-half Tommy Booth Joe Corrigan etc so I could witness them firsthand. so also uh, the training ground for Man City was literally around the corner um, on Platte Lane and uh, we eventually moved from there and moved even closer to, so just within a mile of the ground, really. So I could go to Platte Lane and watch the players train, which I couldn't do, get to the other side of Manchester. So I had a little bit of a weird affinity with City as well, where you see them so close and you and you become attached. But I suppose from Man United, uh, the likes of Greenoff brothers and Stuart Pearson were around my time, Joe Jordan. Uh, but then moving into Man City and watching them on day-to-day basis. And even the little things like, you know, I stand behind the goal at the training ground just on the other side of the fence. And Joe Corrigan every day would ask me how I was. You here again, son. So he became a bit of a hero because he would speak to me. Asa Hartford, because of the name Asa, Scottish international midfield player. So uh, I was drawn to him as well. And Peter Barnes who ironically, who a uh, fantastic winger at the time, and I had the Peter Barnes trainer, again, if anyone remembers at that time, which managed to tuck down you at the front of your either trousers, uh, like a little uh, buckle thing that slipped in and you could kick the ball and it'd come back to you. Uh, ironically, I ended up playing with Peter then a little bit later in, uh, down the line when he joined Man United. So that was a bit of a weird experience. So I had a mixture of both, really, but Man United... I've always been the team, so I like being in, in my blood, in in fact. But I had to con my mates as well, who were all big City fans, uh, because they wanted to go to the games. So it's a bit of a double, a bit of a strange one, but they, they still hold, uh, you know, a place. But Man United is, 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 is the team. And obviously to join them later on in my career was was uh, extra special. When you were growing up, though, was, was the Manchester rivalry grisly? Was it ugly or was it still at the stage? Because it's famously... For for years and years and years, people would go and watch United on one week, and then the following week they'd go to Main Road. I mean, was was it was it nasty when you were growing up? Was it something to be sort no. of quiet about? It, it wasn't something. No, it it wasn't um, as ferocious, we'll say. Uh, and I've been to a Man City game, whether it be Man City playing Liverpool or Man City play uh, Man United playing Liverpool. Uh, the simple fact that it's um, Liverpool fans, uh, Manchester, that sort of rivalry. That's where the most trouble uh, I witnessed was the Manchester-Liverpool uh, games, whether it be City or United or, or vice versa or Everton. So, But, but mainly Liverpool and Man United are the main protagonists. But certainly I remember it kicking off and, and witnessing it, uh, Man City-Liverpool, just outside where we lived and then obviously around the ground. So, yeah. But there wasn't that much. I think it's grown a little bit more over the years. But... Um, it doesn't still compare to the rivalry between uh, certainly Liverpool. <laughs> Absolutely not. OK, so young Alan McLaughlin before Manchester United as a footballer, what are your memories of playing football as a child? Um, joining, um, I was about probably 10, joining the Cubs, uh, which was uh, it, it, not too far from my house in Manchester and getting my first experience of just going out. We had a half an hour at the end of uh, our, our, our Cubs evening playing out on the grass 
Uh, and then a friend of mine who, who was also in the Cubs, his dad had a team called St. Ambrose. He just started joining in there, uh, playing in our Celtic kit, which was uh, took great pride. It was green and white, uh, obviously green uh, and white hoops. Um, and we ended up going to Ireland and, um, and going over in 1978 and on a little mini tour out there. So that was fantastic because relatives were out there uh, for one of the boys. Uh, we played in Dork, Dork Stadium. Uh, and it, again, it added to everything really I played for Manchester boys as well I was very fortunate to be selected right the way through the age groups for Manchester boys from my primary school and then obviously into my secondary school so that lent to exposure then to uh, the chances maybe to to uh, to be signed by a schoolboy but unfortunately most of the lads around me were getting signed but uh, I was deemed a little bit too small uh, and that's what I was constantly told um, I ended up then playing for a team called Jubilee boys and we end up with, you know, being Lancashire champions. But again, uh, the opportunity where most of the boys were being signed up schoolboy forms by, as you can imagine, a lot of clubs around the Lancashire area. And I was missing out because, you know, I was deemed to be too small. And that was always the uh, the excuse uh, along the way. Uh, eventually joined um, a team called Boundary Park Juniors, which you can imagine uh, lends into Oldham Athletic Football Club. A couple of seasons there. Went really well. And then a friend of mine uh, who I was playing with there, uh, I was planning then. I hadn't been picked up by schoolboy by anybody. And I was disappointed. And I knew I was a good player. But like I said, and I've said it many times, the age-all excuses of uh, height and, and and being too frail. And then um, I, I, I found out that uh, Chatterton, who was just, out, just, just in Oldham, were playing, Chatterton youth team were playing Manchester United youth team. So I thought, oh, sod it, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to see if I can get into the team first and try and worm my way and at least to get a chance to play against United. <laughs> and uh, the, the Chatterton manager, I, I think he realised straight away what I was trying to do. Uh, and we played, um, firstly, Man United at Chatterton. Uh, I was a sub and come on for about the last 10 minutes, didn't impact the game. And obviously, I can't even remember that game, if I'm honest. And then we were going to uh, play them again uh, at the cliff. Now they were, I think, they were looking at a player who, who went on to play league football successfully, John Pemberton, yeah. uh, and they were, yeah. I think, just desperate to try and get a, a steal on him. And they arranged another game then to play at the cliff. Uh, and fortunately for me, one or two were on holiday, and it opened up a space for me to play in midfield and, and, and play against United youth team. And on the back of that, I must have done something right because uh, Eric Harrison, the famous youth team coach, made his way down the side of the pitch and started to make inquiries about who uh, the number four was for Chatterton and um, eventually found my mum and dad, uh, asked relevant questions. I told him I was a Manchester school boy and, you know, I'd been in the system for ages and he couldn't quite believe, in his words, not mine, that I, I wasn't at a club. Uh, and he invited me for training, uh, which was amazing. Uh, in the October, I think that was just early October, I went into train with the opportunity to, well, no, you know, it was an opportunity, but no guarantee of anything. And I managed to um, somehow secure a, the very last apprenticeship uh, given out by Man United before it, it morphed into apprentices and YTS scheme players. Uh, and I did enough in that, that period of four months until the, the March time, five months, uh, where I was completely uh, driven, focused. I actually came out of school. Uh, I was told I wasn't, but I had to get from where I was in Didsbury in Manchester if anyone knows the area, and then all the way over to the side of Salford to, to, to the cliff, and uh, I had to be there by a certain time, so I decided I was just going to walk out of class, basically. <laughs> did, 
did it quite discreetly, asked to go to the toilet and, and they didn't see me again. Now, I wouldn't recommend it to everyone, but at the time when you think you've only got one opportunity to uh, to get a chance to play for United or at least get a chance to gain a contract, that's the sort of sacrifice I had to make. So I was never going to be a professor. I was never going to be a, a scholar in any way in terms of uh, education-wise, so I just took the gamble. Uh, suffice to say, the school weren't so happy, but um, as long as my mum and dad were okay with it, that's that was, that was the plan. And of course, dad was working and Mum couldn't. I couldn't sit side saddle on my mum's bike to go all the way to Salford, so it was a matter of catching three buses. But yeah, um, and it was in right in the middle of March when the decisions were made, and uh, yeah, I, I got the unbelievable news. I was um, being offered an apprenticeship at United, which, like I say, when you've been dismissed really from the age of 13, 14, has been too small to be given the opportunity based on your technical ability rather than your height and and, and your physical size. Uh, is was fantastic and it's something I carry through today as academy manager at Swindon and have done throughout my coaching career that that doesn't matter some of the best players in the world are some of the smallest ones and it's just a matter of being patient uh, with the players because the technical ability which I did have uh, you know removing that stereotypical type of player but United took the gamble on me and it was a unbelievable three years at United where I signed a, uh, you know it is a scholarship now but was an apprenticeship and then um, signed a year's professional contract before my release uh, uh, after three years. You know you're not the first person I've talked to on this where they've had hurdles and obstacles to complete because of their height and I, I just see it perennially as a cop-out and I was really interested because obviously you're working in in youth team football now you haven't let anyone go based on height no definitely not no absolutely <laughs> not uh, we have um we, we've waited um for for players to because obviously everyone matures at different times and you have different issues lots of the, the young players have growth spurts and Osgood slatters with their knees and uh, you know Luke Haynes is an example of that uh, when I first came Luke Haynes who's now uh, hopefully going to be a second year professional after a very successful back end of season at Chippenham um, I mean he literally couldn't run the lad for 18 months he couldn't put one leg in front of the other and it got him down so much and you know that wasn't the physical uh, that wasn't the height problem with Luke it was more the us as as coaches and understanding the situation and being patient and uh, that's the same with anyone else within the game who might be small at the moment I've got players in the academy who are I've not matured yet uh, and we're we're going to sit and wait now if they're not technically proficient if they're not technically able to deal with the ball then that's a different matter because you've got two combinations going on that they're going to really struggle with but if you've got a player who's technically gifted understands how to use the ball, checks his shoulder, knows when to pass the ball, when he's about to get, we'll say, taken out by uh, a lad who's a foot taller than him and, and has got all-round general awareness, then that's something that we can and, 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 and wait on. And I expect my coaches to be able to pick up on that as well. But obviously I have the, the final say on uh, players, etc. And there's plenty of players in the building and, and we reassure parents as well that it's not going to make a difference in terms of decision-making. They have to have all the elements that I would say you require to be a, a scholar in terms of mental. Uh, we can develop the physical. Uh, the psychological thing, I think, is the most important thing because if you, even if you're small and you're still brave enough to go and get the ball when it's difficult and, and, and players are bigger, taller, stronger around you, if you've still got them attributes, that shows a great deal of uh, the right stuff that I think we need and they will need to have a chance to make it in their career. And, I mean, we can all name a list of players who who, who are world-class 
who are all under five foot nine, mm-hmm. from Messi down to Iniesta uh, to, to to Xavi, play people like that. Uh, David Silva, I mean, um, Aguero. These are all players who are not blessed with great height, but have, you know, uh, I've had people that recognise the technical still skills that they have. Amazing. Let's go back to United in the sense that one of the real advantages of doing this is we get to talk about people that aren't, you know, linked to Swindon, but it's great to appreciate them. And I mean, for yourself, as you've mentioned already, Eric Harrison, you know, the, the players that he brought through, you know, speaks volumes of that. What what were your experiences of working with Eric? Um, well, certainly um, at the beginning, um, I suppose you, you could argue he might have struggled with um, what, the way the world has, has, has turned around in terms of uh, um, the way you act and, and force is the wrong word, the way you manipulate people into getting the best out of them. Mm-hmm. He was... You, uh, he was in your face in terms of wanting things to be done correctly, repetition of exercises, praise at the right time, criticism at the right time. He had a fear factor about him. Um, he could be quite, you know, vocal to you, uh, and, and I mean in, in a really strong way. But it built character. Um, and, of course, as we move along from then, um through to now things have changed obviously you can't and you know but Eric did change I I believe that certainly from I think he'd even dampened down a little bit even with us compared to some of the stories I'd heard from the likes of Mark Hughes and and Norman Whiteside because they were obviously apprentices uh, just before me Clayton Blackmore etc so they were apprentices before me so some of the stories we'd hear then but more than anything the reason that we respected him because he, he was able and we knew to develop players and he trusted you to get the job done. And like I said, he, no one, uh, and, and even now when I'm, I'm doing my work, no one remembers the, the, um, the, the pats on the back you get and the well done. They always remember the, the little bit of a maybe a go you had at them, or you, you know, you were quite vocal with them, or demanded more from them. And, and people become a little bit more flaky now. I understand the reasons why, uh, and we, and and that's fine. But there still needs to be that element of respect. And and I think. I had ultimate respect for Eric, number one, because he gave me the opportunity. Number two, because I hung on every word he said because of the players he developed prior to me getting there. Uh, he did then obviously end up, and it obviously came into 1992. I'd been left a, a long time by that time, and it was a class of 92. But there's lots of players in between then uh, and, af- uh, and after then, certainly when I was there, who went on to make their careers in football because of Eric. I can name David Platt, I can name Fraser, as uh, 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 Fraser Digby as, as, as two players who have come through that environment as well uh, uh, and, and been successful in their careers and we all felt that the respect first for Eric because of his achievements um, and, the, and, and the way he kept everything simple I see now coaches who uh, you know post online and post comments everything's ultra complicated and uh, and over exaggerated it's a simple game and if you can master the simplicity of the game which he every day drilled into us i mean the amount of hours we spent in front of the wall uh, at the cliff training ground uh, on a shale pitch on my ad at that time just kicking the ball against the wall hitting areas left foot right foot um little tips about how you strike the ball and then into competitive games and everything was competitive there was no soft soap in things uh, checking your shoulder, awareness, communication, 
and that was a, a big factor, personality. Uh, that's what he wanted things to show. And he would let you then within the game, within training sessions, develop your own skills by letting you. He didn't coach you in possession, if that makes sense. All the information was given about what you do without the ball, how you react without the ball. And there was tips and, and bits in between. But he let us develop as a group. But everything had to be competitive. There, there was no, you know, uh, we'll, we'll make this airy-fairy, if the, that makes a way to put it. <laughs> it was full on. And I'd taken that into everything I'd done. And um, maybe in 20, 30 years' time, you might speak to some of the players who I've worked with, maybe. And they might say, then sort of traits are, well, certainly in my coaching methods with the boys, I want, I want things to be competitive. I want every day to turn up. And let's not let's you know, let's get it right. They're, they're working for a maximum. Probably their maximum output is an hour per day of physical energy, real physical hard work. We'll say in terms of football work, it's not a lot, and it's not a lot to expect you to give your best for that hour of real intense work. But it has to be then married up with technical ability, um, the ability to listen, take on board what experienced people say, and um, sometimes that that can be difficult. And particularly, I'm finding. Lots of uh, young players sometimes uh, don't have that capacity to want to listen. And they end up being the boys that unfortunately uh, fall by the wayside because they're either listening to, um, all due respect, mums and dads who think they know better, which they don't, agents who think they know better, which they don't, other coaches who used to coach them who think they know better, they don't. Um, people who are in, in, in positions who've done and seen it before are not always the best coaches, but they do have sometimes the fine detail that some of the coaches lack sometimes, and that does happen. But, uh, yeah, he was amazing. Uh, I've still got letters from him, uh, which he sent me when I, mo- when I moved on. Uh, he was desperate to keep me at United, but um, unfortunately there was a, a voting system at United, uh, so I was told after my release and all the four, uh, the manager, the, uh, the assistant manager, the reserve team manager and the youth team manager, sorry, five, and uh, I think it was the chief scout had to have, a, all had to put their hands up and, and agree and uh, I got four votes out of five, so unfortunately that was my time at United coming to an end, but I think he knew the traits I had. Uh, the ter- determination and passed that on to Lou Macari then who, who who eventually called me and, and made that call to me. Before we leave United I get to ask questions that you know they can't answer anymore um, a generation or so now whose boots did you clean? I was hoping on the day because that obviously was a, a little little caveat of signing uh, we knew that we had to clean certain players boots and we'd been hearing on the grapevine obviously by then you know there was lots to do. It wasn't just cleaning boots. We had to do everything. But uh, I ended up unbelievably getting Brian Robson's boots to clean. And uh, I was just gobsmacked. Uh, the new balance ones and even just to be in the same room was in was quite scary or intimidating. Although he wasn't like that. You were just, it's the England captain. It's one of your, it's one of your heroes. I'd, I'd watched for a few years and seen. And it was like, oh my God, he's standing in the boot room next to me. And uh, he picked his boots out of, the, of, of his, his, his little uh, cubbyhole area. And he handed them to me. He went, "You're my," uh, he said. He said something like, "You're my boy this season." He says, "Make sure they're clean." He said, "And I'll look after you handsomely at Christmas time." So, uh, which he did. I got fifty pound, which was two, which was two weeks' wages, um, which I couldn't believe at Christmas time. So I was delighted. It got me all my presents for everyone, and I had a little bit left over as well. So yeah, Brian Robson was the the man, and uh, luckily I got him. You're very good at this because my next question was, "How much was the tip?" So you know, fifty pounds, not to. Yeah, he he obviously knew what our salary was. So, um, of course, some of the other players only gave out, say, 
10 or 20 quid or whatever, you know, being a bit, bit tight, I won't name them players, but uh, obviously England captain, I think he probably had uh, more pressure on him to hand out a little bit more, but he was more than happy and uh, he's probably loose, probably some loose change in his pocket really because he was, but he deserved it. But and I didn't care because I was looking at, I, I was more happy cleaning his boots and getting 50 quid. That makes sense. Getting a couple of pair of boots with him, but we weren't the same size. So uh, I kept him, I think I gave him to a couple of my mates and they couldn't believe it. They were, they were, they were playing local soccer, you know, like Sunday league football with uh, Brian Robson's boots on. So they were delighted. Ron Atkinson's your manager at that stage as well. How how was he during that time? Um, he was okay. We certainly were involved in the first team um, on on a weekly basis, i.e. a Thursday morning. Uh, the first team always played against the youth team, uh, preparing for Saturday. So you'd see him up close and personal firsthand. Um, like I said, at the time, I was a left-back and a right-back then. I even played centre-half a lot of times. Actually, Mark now Quinn down at Arsenal. I was five foot, not even ten at that point. I'm not five foot ten now. I was five foot nine and three quarters, which I am now. And I'm marking Niall Quinn as a centre half. But he, he was, he was, he, he was fine. He, he was okay. Um, he didn't, you know. I don't remember him coming watch the youth team on a Saturday morning, which I always thought was a little bit strange. That wouldn't certainly be something Alex Ferguson wouldn't have done, uh, particularly when United are playing at home. You'd expect maybe the first team manager to be there watching uh, in the morning, uh, particularly when it was indoors. He could watch as well from upstairs um but yeah he was okay uh, my problem was I, I had a raft of players in front of me uh, just even younger players i had clayton blackmore in, you know uh, welsh international uh, he was a couple of years older than me uh, he just signed off the, off the back of the euros i think john sieverbeck he came in uh, the danish player it was arthur alberson scottish international left back he was still performing at that time. John Gidman, he brought in was someone else. Uh, I think he played for England as well, but predominantly Everton. So there's lots of players. Mike Duxbury, England international. So the club was inundated with uh, defenders in, in full-back areas, which was where I was strong at the time. So uh, I think they, they, he deemed in the end uh, just too many players and I wasn't going to get a look in. But um, they were prepared to give me another year, but it all had to be decided by all five. And unfortunately, I didn't get the casting vote. So... It was quite interesting because I know who the casting vote didn't come from. And then I did meet him further down the line in my career when he picked me up at a hotel as I was going to uh, join Aston Villa on loan. So that was quite an awkward uh, <laughs> driving the car for him after he told me I'd do very well in Division 4, uh, as it was then. And that was his parting shot to me. So uh, I had pissed him off once because uh, I, I did have the gall to answer him back at a reserve game. And uh, he didn't like it. Now, whether it stuck in his craw, I don't know. But I was certainly right when we were playing Man City at at, at, um, at, at Main Road and there's 5,000 people watching. Yeah, and you've got Dave White, the uh, the former... Um, I think he made a few appearances for England. Yeah, yeah, for City winger, yeah. He's giving you a bit of a torrid time because you've got a centre-half who doesn't want you to, to, to vacate his position because he can't handle the centre-forward. So I got in a bit of an altercation with him, the first one I had in the dressing room with uh, any sort of manager, really. And he, and he wasn't Eric. It was somebody else, and uh, I, I was going to stand up for myself, and I think ultimately probably backfired with him. Yeah, and this is of course pre-glossy, you know, for want of a better phrase, plastic Manchester United. This is the historic Manchester United. I mean, my best friend supports Manchester United, goes all over the world watching them, and he's raised by his Manchester United supporting dad, who's got all the stories from the seventies and eighties. We got to remember when you're playing for them as as a first year pro. There's one substitute, uh, 
So opportunities are limited yep. regardless. But you must be tremendously proud that you managed to get that far. Well, number one, just, just to sign, like I said, after all the rejections and you know, then to be deemed good enough to sign for Man United uh, was fantastic. Uh, and, and, and I captained the team. I kept for the two years I was there. Uh, we had the England Schoolboy International uh, captain uh, as well signed, a lad called Simon Ratcliffe, who played for Salford Boys. And um, that pre-season we trained uh, our first game. I think I mentioned it earlier, we, we, we played Arsenal. And now Quinn was... Uh, I didn't know obviously playing for Arsenal at that time, but I remember travelling down, um, travelling down to Arsenal, and we were sitting on the bus, and we left early on a Saturday morning. The game was Saturday afternoon, and um, Eric walked down the bus, and he, and he sat. He, there was a lot of lads. He sat down next to me, and he said, "Oh, you're playing centre half today." I was normally played fullback. I said, "Okay." He said, "I've been told they've got a big lad plays up front for Arsenal." He said, "And I'm talking, he's really tall." So he said, "There's no point competing with him." So he gave me a bit of a tactical talk and about things and it was obviously Niall Quinn he'd, he'd obviously got some information I'd never seen Niall Quinn before in my life so when uh, obviously I turned up to uh, the Arsenal training ground I saw the size of the big fella it was like oh Jesus how the hell I'm going to compete with this but anyway uh, whilst sitting next to Eric I cheekily asked him who was going to be captain for the day for the game and he said I haven't decided and I haven't decided for the season yet I said well I'd like to be captain please and it was probably the most nervous I've been but I thought well if I don't shoot <laughs> if you don't shoot you don't score and he didn't say anything he, he went down the bottom bus he went you're a cheeky bugger he went down the bottom of the bus and uh, sat there we got to the game and just before we went out I think Simon thought he was nailed on to be sticking the armband on or as it was then putting a bit of tape around your arm and uh, he, he announced I would be the captain and captain for the rest of the season and that's what happened so that again gave me enormous pride that and I think the fact that it put one or two of the international players who were in the squad that we did have, Irish internationals, Scottish internationals, etc., in their place where just a lad from Manchester, he's just joined, he's keen as mustard. He, he's raring to go, if you know what I mean. He's, he's not going to air as a graces, he's just going to get on with the job and to make me the captain. And, you know, we went on then to win the Lancashire League, etc., etc. And the, the confidence it gave me was fantastic. And again, that goes back to some of the man management skills that he did also have as well as being a, a damn good coach and a motivator and, and an organiser of a team um, all them little psychological elements certainly helped here's Bowley far side is Bowling Odin's cross up in the air Belgate punches away comes to McLaren who hits it through a crowd of players and he's found the net that could well be the winning goal with just three and a half minutes remaining of extra time. Ross McLaren, his third goal of the season, second in the Littlewoods Cup, through a crowd of Bolton players and into the back of the net. Let's talk about Swindon then. So, you know, this is before my time of following Swindon. So I'm really excited and eager to learn. I do my research, but you give you give me the colour and this is what I'm looking forward to. So, you know, to the untrained eye, I see Alan McLaughlin, Manchester United, and I see Lou Macari, Manchester United legend. And I simply assume this is how the, the romance begins. Is that the case or is there a bit more to it? Um, not really. I, I don't think. I mean, Lou, Lou was coming to the end of his career at United when when I joined. He probably was about thirty four at that point when I joined as a sixteen year old. I'm guessing that sort of age. Um, we did end up playing in the reserves together. I remember playing uh, at Everton. Lou Lou actually played right back, believe it or not, and I played left back. 
and uh, I had the team sheet from that from that game. Uh, so I played maybe three or four reserve games with him. But I, th- I, seem, I think it was the fact that he obviously moved on to Swindon then. Uh, obviously kept in touch with uh, United. Um, uh, and maybe, I don't know whether he was obviously trying to get long players in at certain things. I think the long system obviously a, a lot different than it is now. But he kept that contact. And then uh, certainly when I got released, I'm, I'm guessing, he, ne- he never told me directly, but I'm guessing Eric would have phoned him and got hold of him and said, look, you know, the club have released Alan. Um, what are your thoughts? And the story got, well, I won't go into the whole thing, but basically I, I was released. I got the opportunity to go with Stoke to France on a, a little tour, and we actually went with Oldham. So we went on the coach with Oldham uh, to France, went to a tournament. I ended up getting player of the tournament, hoping to sign for Stoke. Nothing happened. Um which I was a surprise with. I said I won't go into the whole thing with that, but um, I ended up in, again another shouting match with the, the the Stoke boss at the time, under 18s manager, Mr. Tony Lacey. Told him where he could stick his under 18s, and uh, Joe Royal was on the bus and actually told me to pipe down. Uh, I can't swear, I won't swear on there, but I told him to off, and um, then I regretted it because I realised I've got to try and get a trial with Oldham now. And I asked him to come off the bus. I said, I'm, I apologise for swearing. I said, would you mind if I come for a trial? He said, I'll think about it. But in the meantime, Lou had, about a week later, I got a phone call out of the blue sitting in my house, and it was from, from Lou. And he said, uh, he said, would, would, would I come for a, uh, a month's trial? And, of course, I snapped his hand off. I said, of course I would. I said, yeah, I'd love to. He said, we're going to uh, Malta in two days' time. Bring, bring a, We're going pre-season your, your book to go as well if you agree I said oh, I'd love to so I took enough gear obviously for the month uh, and arrived down to Swindon my mum and dad brought me down in the van my dad's work van and uh, got dropped outside the, the county ground um, didn't know who was around what was there no sign of Lou and the door opened and I don't know if you can remember a lovely man lovely person Chris Scott popped his head out of the uh, county ground club at the time and asked whether I was okay and uh, I said I'm looking for Lou Macari and I think he looked at me a bit bewildered uh, and he gave Lou a phone call and Lou popped down then and he just stuck me into digs and ended up being in digs with Kenny Allen uh, came in the next day it was the next day coincidentally was the the, the team photo and of course I went in the dressing room the only person I knew was Fraser obviously sidled up next to Fraser didn't know anyone else lads were kind you know friendly enough but they were getting ready and putting their shirts and kit on to go out for the team photo. And obviously I just sat there because I wasn't going to put a kit on and be that presumptuous. And uh, I remember wandering out thinking, well, everyone's gone. I can't sit in here. I wandered out and looked onto the pitch and Lou shouts over to me to put some kit on. I'm thinking, you can't be serious. I can't put kit on. I'm going to look all right, Wally stood here. <laughs> anyway, the actual photo, it's, it's, the, it's, it's still at the county ground. It's in as you walk upstairs. And uh, it's the team photo of the uh, 86-87 season. And you'll see me looking frightened to death because I've I've literally been in Swindon two minutes. I've been in the county ground at least 20 minutes. I'm now in the first team photo. I'm thinking, what the hell's going on here? You know, the lads are thinking, well, who's this fella? But Lou being Lou and the character he was, he he, he kept me hanging on for a month. I'd I'd gone to Malta, played in games out in Malta did well, settled in with the lads, was fit enough for him. Um, and he kept me for the whole month. 
he, but he was signing me apparently from first day. It, it was it was already done and dusted. But he kept me on tender hooks for a whole month. Uh, the sod that he was, and uh, yeah, I came back and uh, he offered me twenty pound more than I was earning at at, at, uh, at United. My digs were to be paid for, and it was take it or leave it, or go back to Manchester and work with your dad on the buildings. On, on, on the with, with his company, his building company, and so I took the option to obviously take the twenty quid pay rise, which was the best thing I ever did. You and Kenny Allen sharing digs sounds like the ultimate odd couple. He was on a different level, Kenny. Yeah, he loved to play his guitar in in, in the digs. He was tone deaf. Uh, <laughs> he liked a little sherry now and then. Yeah, we used to try and obviously, as you know, Lou was an absolute stickler for for no alcohol. But you know, I'm 19. Um, I'm in a new place. We want to go out around. The, the town the only way we could you know sort of meet girls or meet up with other everyone else is obviously to go to the pub but uh kenny dobbed us in a few times uh, <laughs> well he dobbed me definitely once and we got the uh the next next morning uh, we got our ledger on office by lou and he, obviously he he wasn't very happy with the fact that we were down the pub uh, up the pub and asked whether we drunk and of course we denied that we had a pint he said well you went to the pub and you didn't have a pint all night well yeah yeah we just drunk orange juice and of course he's laughing with kevin morris god rest his soul and john trollope uh, but he he he, he run us and the only reason i know kenny dubbed us in because as we went to knock on the door at the digs we heard the phone ring it was like a communal phone in the middle of the hall and the phone rang and we put our ears to the door and we could hear kenny on the other side of the door saying, no, Lou, they're not back home yet. No, Lou, no, 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 they're not back, Lou. No, no, I'll let you know what time they come in tomorrow. Anyway, of course, then we left it a minute, knocked on the door. Kenny opened the door. And the first thing I said to Kenny was, Kenny, I said, has Lou phoned? No, lads, nothing. No, no, you got away with it this time. I thought, you lying so-and-so. <laughs> so we knew, of course, we weren't going to argue with him, not Kenny, So because he, uh, he, he was quick to... To, to lose his temper so we just left it at that really for someone who's born and raised in the northwest what was it like moving down to somewhere far more sleepy like wiltshire well i thought gorse hill was the main town center <laughs> as i come through from the moonies we thought that gorse hill was that was it and uh, of course it didn't prove to be that way but it was different i mean complete change of pace really more than anything when you're used to manchester and like I say, I lived in just on the, in, I've lived in place, I mean, mum and dad still do now, live in Fallowfield, and we lived in Moss Side. So uh, you can imagine different cultures. Um, you had to be wary of where you went, what time you went. Um, you had to be wary of different streets and gangs that were around in terms of you can't go down there, etc. But it was still a great place to be in terms of, you know, my, my upbringing and look, learning how to look after yourself. So it didn't, it didn't, pose any fears coming to Swindon. It's just the pace of everything, really, completely different. Uh, I'm still here now. I still live in Swindon now. I love the place. It's fantastic. Uh, I didn't think I'd be still here, you know, this many years later. I came in 1990, uh, sorry, 1986, and I'm still here now. So it certainly holds a, a great place in my heart, Swindon. And uh, my girls, uh, obviously, and my wife are from Swindon, and it's fantastic, but uh, certainly a, a, a big shock. And like I say, um, I was quite thankful that it wasn't Gorse Hill was the main town, <laughs> main town centre. It did expand a bit further past that. But if it was Gorse Hill, it was Gorse Hill. You just get on with it, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking at that picture now um, from 86, 87. And I've got to say, you, you sat next to John Trollope and yeah. Lee Bernard, and you do look tense, I must say. I, that... <laughs> I mean, I, I didn't know who John Trollope was then. I mean, I subsequently found out about the legend that is John Trollope. 
uh, and the amount of games he played and, and, and you find out about the club as you move along. Uh, but yeah, I was very unfamiliar with everyone apart from Fraser. Um, Peter Coyne was obviously a Mancunian um, and I was, I was aware of him after, again, I wasn't aware Peter was at Swindon. I, and uh, I remember when Luke called me, he said, um, "He said, uh, w- will you will you come to Swindon uh, for a month?" And I said, "Yeah." And I said, "Where is Swindon?" He went, "It's in Wiltshire." I went, "Where's Wiltshire?" Because <laughs> I hadn't a clue at the time. So uh, we managed to find our way 168 miles uh, down the M6 onto the M5 and, and, and to Swindon. And like I say, it's uh, it, it, it's been a fantastic place to be. But surrounding all these people, it took a little bit time to get used to, to them. But at least I had a, a, you know, Fraser, who obviously we had three years together at, at, at United. Um, but you soon make friends with the boys and everyone was great. Peter Coyne straight away, because I'm Mancunian, he was. So there was two Mancunian accents flying around in there, which obviously got the, the mickey taken out of them. And, and, and the lads generally were great. For for me, this is this is the squad that say my dad used to talk about a lot because they you know rejuvenated a fan base really because we'd be down in the doldrums for a while when you arrive with just one division four and you've got people like Dave Bamber, Chris Ramsey, Chris Kamara, Charlie Henry, so many players that huge names in my childhood even though I didn't see most of them play and I want to talk about things like your debut and things like that in a moment but what really stands out in regards to your career for me is something that probably won't happen that much even though I think maybe we might have it with LSI Andalo is that you, you, for want of a better phrase, was were a bit of a slow burner at Swindon, weren't you? Where you were given seasons to develop before you really, really got going. Was was Makari's plan to develop you? Or were you trying to get into that first team earlier, but it just didn't happen? Well, I think I, I was just trying to. I was just trying to. St- the only thing I wanted to do when I come to Swindon was to to get to a club where I could make my league debut. Now. That's that gets washed away a little bit now nowadays where players play under twenty three football and you know they're earning great money doing that and they think that's enough. It's not enough. I wanted to make my debut in the league to say I'd played a game. So that was a motivating factor to come to Swindon and somebody who I knew believed in me and had good information about me. But when I came, let's not forget I came to a team that I think accumulated 106 points, was it, the season before? Right, yeah. Something like that. A record amount of points. So to try and break into a team who was established and would add other players, not only me, other players would be coming into an established team. I knew it was going to be difficult. I knew I had to wait. Uh, I knew I'd have to play f- uh, uh, and wait for injuries to happen. I knew I might only play a handful of games that season, depending on, on the situation. And that proved to be the case. I think I only played about eight games in the first season. Uh, made my debut uh, at Newport away in a 2-2 draw at right back. So... Um, I, I think Lou predominantly brought me in as a full-back, left-back, right-back. But uh, I, I played very few games there for Swindon. But to establish yourself as a 19-year-old then, in and you just said it, in amongst some, I mean, Dave, you can throw Dave Hockaday in there as well, uh, Colin Calderwood, Absolutely. Tim Parkin, Steve White, all these are experienced players. And I was with Fraser, one of the, the few young lads in that group. So it was quite easy to understand why you, you, you'd be left out sometimes. And Lou, Lou, I think as things 
were successful that season, the next season as well, it becomes harder to throw a young player in. And he, he knew I was good value for supplementing the squad. And then um, I think I only played about eight games and ended up going down to Torquay on loan. Uh, and it wasn't an option. I, I was told you're going. You know, it's as simple as that. You're, you know, I ended up going down to Torquay and it was the best, probably the best thing that ever happened to me in terms of understanding where I was as a, a person in terms of my football ability, where I was mentally, physically as well, because you're now dealing with lads who are at the bottom of the set, uh, the old fourth division fighting for their careers and fighting for their livelihoods and you're in amongst it. And it was a fantastic thing that Lou probably didn't want to do, but knew for my development was probably the best thing to do and hoped I'd come back fitter and stronger and mentally probably a bit, uh, a little bit more sharper. And that's exactly what happened. So I, I, I've got no problems with that first season whatsoever. The second season then, uh, my second season again, I think he signed John, John Kelly came in from Oldham, I think, or where, wherever he was. And there was more players. Obviously we just missed, missed out on promotion to uh, Crystal Palace, I believe. Uh, but I did. I think that's right. I think season yeah. two is the year yeah. Aston Villa won at our place, and I think yeah, your season what... three is is Crystal well, Palace. I think sorry, I'm getting a bit confused. It was a long time ago. I do apologise. <laughs> no. uh, my, my first, obviously, my first full season was was the Gillingham uh, um, game down at uh, Sellers Park, and I was actually on loan at, at Torquay at the time. I actually trained that morning for Torquay. Uh, and I drove all the way back to, to, to try and get on the bus to get to um, uh, the game with the lads. But unfortunately, I missed the bus and had to jump in a supporters car who drove me all the way to, to Sellers Park. And uh, that's how I got to the game. But f- for them to uh, get promotion then was fantastic. And then the following season, then again, I made a bit more of a fist of it. But it was difficult. Again, you're you're a young player trying to establish yourself and you're waiting for an opportunity. And that opportunity came when... Dave Hockaday picked up an injury against Portsmouth. I think we played Pompey twice in a week. And uh, Dave, I was sub on the night. Uh, Dave got injured in the first half, about midway through, and I came on. And uh, as luck would have it, he was injured for a while. That's how it goes. And I established myself in the team. But then when when he came back, he went to right back and someone else got injured in field and I ended up going into midfield. So them little bits of, you know, quirks of fate and, and, and timings were just right for me and by that stage like I said I'd been to Torquay twice on loan now played lots of games scored some goals as well so my confidence was high and I felt I felt a bit better but there's still a nagging doubt about the situation because I remember reading Evening Advertiser once and I think they were talking about players and I was described as driftwood by a fan once we need to get rid of the drift. we need to get rid of the driftwood and uh, I was named amongst the three or four players so that stuck in my uh, craw a little bit I was described as driftwood and uh, I, I remember that uh, going to Sims Chippy and going back to my digs and not being very happy with whoever wrote that oh, I, I, I wouldn't worry about it too much because I've definitely oh, seen it, a newspaper clippings from like 1969-70 where fans are complaining so I wouldn't worry too much it's a bit different nowadays they just get on the phones and yeah, so straight uh, to Twitter. Yeah, absolutely. Thankfully, we missed all that. Kelly is only a couple of yards away, but Digby manages to push it one-handed onto the bar. You're listening to the Low Strangers podcast, proudly sponsored by the STFC official supporters club. It must have been Cyril Knowles then at um, Torquay. Yeah, it was Cyril Knowles the second time I went there. Yeah was um, Stuart Morgan so I went for I played 
I played from about mid March to end of um, mid March to the end of well to the early May. Played about fifteen or sixteen games for Stuart Morgan, and I played in the game, the famous game down at Torquay, where uh, where the police dog bit Jim McNichol, the right back. Ah, and yes. we survived the game. I actually played in that game, right. uh, as did David Platt for Crew, uh, and Dave Platt scored the first goal for Crew, and uh, we went two 0 down, and then we got two goals back. Uh, we're two one down, and then the dog bit Jim. There was about an eight or nine minute delay, and then when we restarted, we managed to equalise, and uh, the equaliser kept Torquay in the league and sent Lincoln into the conference. It was the very first time that a team got relegated into the conference, so there was a lot of riding on that game. Not for me because I knew I had another contract at Swindon the next year, but I felt I had to do something, and I was playing week in week out for them to save these boys skin because that's what it was really because they were dropping into the conference and part-time football where they were full-time professionals so it was a big deal I remember it was a fantastic party we finished 91st out of 92 teams and it was the biggest party (laughs) I've ever that was a good night actually well, I've read the book by um, another former town player called Gary Nelson. It's called Left Foot in the Grave. And he talks about his career at Torquay a few years after you would have played for them. But, I mean, the setup when he was there in the early 90s, it, it, it sounds, you know, National League South in, in, in sort of in, yeah. in, in facilities. Was, was that very much the case? Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, I think we used to train, go on to train at some um, um, school. Um, the kids would be out playing over there and we'd have a little section. You know, it, it was really bog basic. I mean, it really was at Swindon at the time when we first come. We were shifting around different places. You know, we were we were down on a, a little pitch on Shrivenham Road, which was behind where the tyres were. And we were sort of like roaming around Swindon, you know, different facilities. Headland School was another place we used occasionally. And there was no one spot and, and training facilities were really sparse. So, and... You know, we've gained promotions out of the extension where it's Foundation Park now. Uh, the lovely 4G pitch, which we do use now, uh, which is fantastic. But that was where we, we trained. You know, you have to go around picking up the dog mess before you started and et cetera. And people would be wandering across and, uh, you know, I'd be out there with, you know, later on in the afternoon with Nicky Summerby, Nicky Hammond uh, and, and other players practising in, in the old goals that were there. You know, no nets or nothing. So... You know, we got two promotions there. So it wasn't something that phased us. But certainly the, the facilities were a little bit more sparse down at um, certainly Torquay. And that's the reason why they were down there, because they just don't have the fan base and they don't have the facilities to, to change things around. It's always, always a struggle. But it, it, was, um, it, it was a great experience. And I went back then the following season. Again, Lou made some signings that summer. Um, promotion was gained. Lou made some more signings and, and, and again, experienced players and that was really the next season, the make or break season for me, really, whether my journey with Swindon continues or whether I have to make a decision to uh, join someone like a talkie to kickstart my career, like Dave Platt had done at Crew. Uh, and Sean Knowles was desperate for me to sign. And he got a bit irate that I, I, I didn't want to commit there and wanted to stay at Swindon. And that was my worst him in the office, really, where I, I think I still got a chance of making it Swindon. And of course, he was saying, you've got no chance of making it and it's winning they've just signed all these players there you know he's trying to he's trying to turn it the other way what a lovely place to be live down at Torquay you know and the sun and the, you know, the Riviera and all this sort of like nonsense but I, I need to get back to Swindon and, and, and try and give it I, I wasn't going to sort of like give in on it really and uh, it, it was important I got back and yeah my opportunity came along in that Portsmouth game which I mentioned a little bit early and, and from that moment on uh, I sort of like was a 
I, I didn't miss a game really until I left in uh, December 1990. Before we leave Lou Macari, how how tough did you find his pre-seasons? Yeah, I mean, on a scale uh, that probably no, no one else would encounter, and uh, it was it was quite difficult sometimes because you'd come in and just go straight for your trainers rather than going for your boots. Uh, but Lou had his methods. He enjoyed the younger players. I don't think some of the older players sometimes, you know, he, he didn't quite agree with a lot of the bits that were going on because obviously they were more experienced. But he, he was clever and, and um, he was clever in the way he did things and the way we worked. But for example, I can give you a, an example of a Thursday morning uh, training session uh, that we used to do. We would um, we would train on a Thursday uh, on the extension. We would be out there for an hour and a half. And you remember, I mean, the trees are unfortunately being cut down and cut back a lot now. But we used to do every tree and back. If, if you can imagine all the trees along there by the county ground and in between the cricket pitch. I mean, that's a hell of a shift anyway. Uh, there's also the track there. And he used to live, uh, love us doing on a Thursday four 400 metres, four 200 metres and four 100 metres. So that was a Thursday after training. Or you do that first and then train. And then, of course, we'd have our usual five and a half, six mile runs around around Swindon. Uh, you'd be timed. You'd be expected to be back in a certain time. Uh, and he would pair players up, um, set them off at different times and expect people to be in at certain times. And if you weren't, you wouldn't play on a Saturday or you wouldn't be on the bench. And I've run to be on the bench before. Lou, I think you mentioned the Villa game. He hadn't decided his substitutes. And um, I, don't, I don't think we had anything riding on the season, but the outcome of um, the situation was the two best times um, recorded uh, leaving the county ground and it's a five and a half mile run coming back with the two subs. So again, I was making sure I was in that one. And uh, we had some really fit boys, really fit boys, Steve White, Lee Bernard, who you're going to, um, Fraser Digby, probably the fittest goalkeeper at that time, probably in the whole world, in terms because he did exactly the same as everybody else in terms of um, running. But um it stood us in good stead. We didn't realise it at the time. And of course, the more we won on a Saturday and scored in the 84th minute and the 79th minute, the more the players would come in and obviously delighted and go, oh, crap, we've got to do this again next week because it, it, it proved we were just run, we just steamrolled teams over in terms of pure fitness, in terms of pure being able to get around uh, the park. Um, our levels were far superior than everyone else. Obviously, um, lots of people were afraid to go out and get on the drink as well because of Lou's reputation of making sure that every pub in the, Swin- in the Swindon area had a hotline to his phone, uh, which they did. And um, he used to dob any of the lads in. So in the end, it wasn't worth doing it. So, you know, you were minus the alcohol intake, which was legendary around them sort of times, whether you're playing rugby, cricket or football. You know, it was, it was just a, a norm, if that makes sense. And it was part and parcel of the culture you were in. But uh, we obviously didn't intake as much as probably others and were fitter than others. And that's sort of some good said. And as well as, as well as taking that all aside, had some really good players. So, you know, he picked some fantastic players along the way. He took me to um, um, Newport one night and um, I, he asked me to drive his car because I stayed in digs. And uh, of course, when Lou phoned the digs, I wasn't going to, you know, I wasn't going to say. When he said, "What are you doing tonight?" He used to call me Little Al. He said, "What, what are you doing tonight, Little Al?" I said, "Well, well, well nothing, Lou." You know, bloody hell, what's he going to ask me? <laughs> and uh, he said, "Can you drive? Can you come to the county ground? I want you to drive me to Newport. We're going to watch a player." 
I want you to let me know what you think. And of course, I, what could I say? And of course, I didn't want the players to know that I was, you know, I didn't want anyone else to know. I said, well, I will, but you can't say nothing to no one else. Of course, he, I, drive, I drove to Newport and inadvertently I didn't know I was going to, we were watching Paul Bowden and he would go through the team at half time and at the end and drive him back in the car and ask my opinion on all the players. And then he'd obviously get to the player he knew he was trying to sign. And um, I, I remember giving Zippy, as we call him, as I call him, and, and Paula, you know, got a great left foot, um, this, this, and this, to get a bit of a glowing report. And then on the flip side, um, he caught me one afternoon early after training and said, um, you need to pick me up tonight from the county ground at about half three in this afternoon. He said, uh, and of course, I'm trying to get out of it desperately because I, obviously I don't want the lads to get wind. I'm, I'm, I'm driving him like some sort of chauffeur. But uh, he said, it's fine. You need to pick up Chick Bates. Uh, uh, of course, he's got me under his thumb because I can't say no. I'm a young lad and I'm stuck in digs and he knows I'm not doing nothing. So he's got me He's got me right where he wants me. He said, your assessment of Paul Bowden was very good. He said, but I want you to, I want you to come and we're going to watch the Derby game. Uh, Derby, uh, Liverpool versus Derby at uh, Anfield. So he made me drive all the way to bloody Liverpool in his big Mercedes and I picked up Chick Bates and he slept on the back seat on the way up. And of course I'm driving this big Merc, which is ridiculous. I'm nervous as hell driving it. But anyway, we get to Liverpool and uh, cut a long story short, we're coming back in the car with Chick Bates and he asked me about the number four for a Derby. And I said, oh, he's too fat. I said, can't move, um, blah, blah. It was only Ross McLaren, wasn't it? And... Uh, he ended up signing Ross, got me in the office then when he signed and he said, right, tell me what you told me. Tell me, tell him what you told me in the car. <laughs> I said, what, what did I say? He's going, come on, little Al, tell me what you told me about him in the car coming back from <laughs> the, the, the Anthill game. Of course, I never met Ross before in my life and he's standing in front of me. He's got his little moustache and he's looking at me and I'm thinking, oh my God, this is not going to go well, is it? And of course, Lou is just winding me up, isn't he? He's got John Troll up in there. He's got Kevin Morris. He's got Chick in there. So I said, I said, I said you were fat. And um, <laughs> Ross looked at me. And like, I think he would have punched my lights out straight away. But um, I had to try and explain to him. So it was a little bit frosty between me and Ross for about three days. But we soon got over it. It was fine. When you look at the, the last squad of the Macari era, it looked like he really modernized the team and you know the, the the team that you arrived to had the components but it seemed that you know very popular players were being replaced by the Ross McLarens and the Duncan Shearers and things like that and did did you miss because when I spoke to Colin Calderwood I kind of expected him to tell me that his favorite part was like the 90s but his fondest memories of Swindon was the first team that he played for the the mid eighties? Was that the same for you as well? No, I think I think because it was a little bit of a struggle. To, to, I mean, Colin came straight in and established himself and what a player he was, and over you know through a master in not games for Swindon. So I think if you come in and you're straight into the action, if that makes sense, and you're part of something, I had to to bide my time, wait my t- wait for my time, and eventually get the opportunity. So I could see it from the outside because. Sometimes I was in the stands watching the game. Sometimes I was sub. Sometimes, you know, involved, etc. So, um, I'd, the best times for me, I would say, were obviously the Aussie times in terms of the way we played, how we played, uh, and 
the pleasure it gave me. Um, playing for Lou, it was more about establishing myself as, as a professional more than anything. Um, but the uh, the players are equally as, 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 say, equally as gifted. But I suppose Lou moved with the times in terms of moving up through the divisions. He needed a different style and quality of player. Yeah. But um, they weren't always going to fit that. Because when you're in the fourth division and you're fighting for you, scrapping for your lives and someone comes in like Lou Macari, as Ozzy did, you can't help but your draw drop and say, my God, that's a Scottish international. He's played 450 times for United, whatever it was. He's a legend, as we did when Ozzy came in through the door as well. So you respect him straight away and you'll do anything. You'll run as fast. You'll do anything to, to, to be a part of it. And when it's successful, it's it just keeps rolling on. But I suppose at some point that sort of like energy to keep on running and keep on doing exactly the same things uh, week in, week out can become then a little bit of a little bit difficult and you have to start refreshing things. And some of the players you bring in, they don't they're not up to speed with how fit you are. They don't buy into the culture of what Lou was about and how he operated. And it took time again. So for for Colin, I can perfectly understand why that was his probably greatest time because he led from he led it if that makes sense and and there was an evolving door of success uh, uh, and it evolved and and it revolved as well but at some point it's going to come to them because Lou got poached away to to West Ham because he had to pursue something different and then that led on for me to uh, the introduction of Aussie and a completely different um, method and style of operating uh, to Lou. Uh, and it opened up our eyes to a different avenue uh, of way of playing uh, and a way of training, etc. Well, it's only one way you can get fit is to run. And uh, most days we go out here and we run to start with and then uh, then we play with the ball. The moment when you found out that this small team in Wiltshire had appointed a World Cup winner from Argentina, uh, who, had, who was a legend of the 80s in, in England as well. Well, like, well, I mean, like I say, I mean, Lou was a legend anyway. Uh, in terms of me personally uh, and my connection with United and, and, and my affinity with Celtic as well. So he he, he was up there for me and uh, for him to speak to me every day and call me little Al and have a personal relationship with him and, and him trust me and et cetera, being so young was great. And um, But then when he did leave for passage, you know, I remember I, I was actually in hol- on holiday in Tenerife and I saw it, I bought the paper and saw that he'd gone to West Ham and I couldn't believe it. And of course, then you couldn't get on your mobile and phone home you had to wait etc but then when we come back it was all about then who was going to replace him and we literally had no idea and I remember we were uh, we, we came into training and we were asked to meet in the first team dressing room and um, I don't know if you've been into the first team dressing room at, uh, at the county ground it's not changed much since my day apart from there's there's no little sauna in there no more mm-hmm. which Lou had in there and we, we sat there and I was around the corner where I would normally sit so out of view the door opened and we just heard footsteps coming down this longish sort of like little corridor we have before it opens into the dressing room. And we still had no idea at that point. And then as obviously he come around the corner, I'm looking, I'm looking at Ozzy Ardiles and I'm thinking, this has got to be a joke. And um, literally, uh, Mr. Hillier, who was the chairman at the time, introduced him. I think Gary Herbert was there as well and said, he is your new manager. Have you got a few things to say? Um, and he did his usual line, I'll be very happy to be here. Um, the lads are going, what? What's he saying? <laughs> um, but we were gobsmacked. And he literally turned and walked out. And he said, uh, "Get you know, I think he said, get yourself changed. We'll we'll start training in, in 20 minutes. 
And of course, the buzz around the dressing room was like unbelievable. My God, it's Ozzy Ardiles, you know. It's his first foray into the game as well in terms of management. And um, we went outside, we trained on the pitch and he had his kit on and he joined in. And literally, I'm thinking, I've just been watching him in the 1978 World Cup. I've just been watching him play for Tottenham when he came. And Tottenham got battered by Liverpool. I think it was 7-0 at Anfield and all the uh, the highs and the lows he had through his career at Spurs. And again, thinking, you know, what? where's this going to take us now? Little did we know it would take us into a period of time where, like I said, I was the most happiest playing football in terms of uh, knowing what we were doing, how we were playing, the structure of what we were doing and the freedom he gave us to play, but also within some real strict boundaries and how we played as well in terms of what he expected from his players. And of course, then he had the advantage of the squad virtually being the same, really. He took virtually the same squad from the season, previous season. And I can't remember who he, who he might have added into that that group, by the way. Uh, I can't recall the top of my head. But changed the whole philosophy of, on how we played, really. And um, it was uh, it was quite inspiring, really, to, to see that he, he, he trusted a group of players and, and, and made you feel like you could play. It wasn't about just maybe hitting channels, etc. You could play your way from the back through midfield into into uh, into the forwards, and he wanted to play a diamond formation, which hadn't been done before. And uh, luckily, I was a recipient of the, that role of being top of the diamond. Yeah, I can only think success-wise or first-team-wise. I can only really think David Kerslake um, from that from that yes. season. Yeah, that'd be about right. Yeah, I, I mean, think Dave, everybody else. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think right there with that because there were some good young players as well. There was Paul Hunt made made his uh, debut, I think, under Aussie. Sean Close he brought in from Spurs, yeah. uh, who, who sort of got a bit, he played a, a few games but really couldn't get in again. It's a bit similar to myself because of the way Steve White and uh, Duncan Shearer performed that season and, and the amount of goals we got as a three, really. So, uh, yeah, that was a bit of a struggle for him. There was a documentary about Swindon from 92-93 and Sean, that's Sean's last season, Sean Close. Oh. And... I felt quite sorry for him because obviously they're talking about releasing him and talk, and he's looking for a new club and things like that. And he, he, he never won over the Swindon fans and he was there for so long as well. And I think yeah. he scored a couple of goals. But again, the players he was up against, if you don't take your opportunity, if it's five minutes or the occasional cup game, what more can you do? Well, it's difficult. Well, you know, I think Jorky, Steve got, 20-odd goals in, in that season with Aussie. Duncan got similar amount. I got 18 in total, 17 in total from open play, um, which I'm really proud about. Um, and you just it's difficult to get in. And we were hardly injured. And I think that's a crossover from Lou's time as well, where the, the intense training and, and, and the physical levels we got ourselves, you know, the next season, although we did train and the sessions were different, we didn't do as many lung-busting ones. But there was still... We didn't do five and a half mile runs all the time. There was still, you know, work that was done. Obviously, we just shouldn't turn up, do a five aside, and go home. But uh, our residual uh, energy levels were always high, and and I think the lads got themselves in a the position where, if the training session wasn't as physical, we would do our own bits anyway, mm. uh, because we knew we, you know, we needed to maintain the work that Lou had done with us in terms of that, because it gave us an advantage. And when you get the likes of Duncan, probably his record that season uh, in terms of games played. Steve's term. I think I played. I think the season with Lou. I mean, I'm up to probably fifty odd games at fifty four games that season. I think Colin got one more than me, 
I think that's yeah. Eighty nine. I think you are technically ever present, but you're a sub in one game. I think Colin yeah. and um, oh, I think there's one other. I think Fraser missed one game, but you play sixty one, but one is as a sub. I mean, that's that's, that's ridiculous, really. You play sixty one games, and we also I don't know if anyone probably will be able to remember the famous um, cup ties against. Bolton, where we played them four times, yeah. three plays, and you know you're playing in them sort of fixtures, and they end up being fixtures that change the the, the scale of uh, and and the, the format of of football afterwards because they realise it was ridiculous, you know, playing that many games to get through a uh, get through a round, but they added to the uh, the mix. But it's amazing, and it always is the same when a team is successful and doing well, and no one wants and things are not on a downward curve. You'll find that. These little mystery illness, uh, illnesses or niggles that suddenly find themselves when you're dropping down the league or whatever, and players in the treatment room is filled. It was hardly filled the treatment room, and the likes of Sean Close and the, the likes of other players, again only two subs probably at that time as well. It's difficult to get into a team that was mainly ever present. I, I can't remember John Gittins missing too many games. I can't remember Steve Foley missing many games. I can't remember Tom Jones missing too many games myself, Duncan. It was a settled side uh, and it really was and it was through the season. So that made it difficult for the likes of the other boys to establish themselves. But hey-ho, you're in there, you've got to take your chances as we did and uh, I wasn't going to complain playing so many games. No, absolutely not. And this is your breakthrough season which has loads of reward as a result of it. But I mean, it is a dramatic change of or four may not be as surprising and I'm not saying that you you were poor in the years before but you go from somebody who's just breaking through to having this outstanding season where you're in amongst the goals in open play as you as you point out and playing all these minutes what what changed the confidence that uh the confidence to uh that Aussie gave me really and not only just me every player he had a he had a different way of going around things uh he made it his his he made it a goal every week to make sure he was engaged and spoke to every player at least once. He or there was nothing negative really from Aussie in terms of um, anything he said. It, it was all positive, even when things went a bit awry. There was always a positive note to it, and it was it was a change to. I say Lou didn't do that. Of course he did. He was he was positive and he praised the lads, but also he he just believed in what he was doing and. He kept things very simple in terms of, and although we're a great passing side, there was lots of technical work in there, which I hadn't seen before in terms of where he wanted players, how he wanted players to go and press, how we press as a team and stop the opposition from playing. And all that thing, all them them side um, elements of football, which are not seen really probably by the fans sometimes, uh, they only see the the nice pretty stuff if that makes sense yeah. there was a lot of technical work involved in uh, lots of stuff uh, actually training the high ground much to the uh, much to the uh, groundsman's dismay sometimes about finishing at times and recognizing um like having this peripheral vision where you know where the goal is but you know working out the you know behind and the side of the goal which which board uh, is just by the goal so you could your angle of your foot would be that way because you knew the goal. Because you can't always see the goal if it's coming in, if that makes sense. Okay. Uh, things happen so quick, people block things. So awareness and visual awareness of the ground itself and um, all these little things that I had ne- never heard of before and didn't practice. And it's just that general belief that you get the players and uh, freedom to go and express themselves. But like I said, 
really clever work with with the way we played in terms of particularly my position because the diamond hadn't been introduced before and I saw the clip recently of when we went to Wembley and absolutely smashed uh, Sunderland 1-0 and um, I could believe when I actually did pick up the ball I picked it up in a space where uh, I was meant to pick it up just behind the, the front two but Sunderland played a flat they played 4-4-2 basically and they thought that with two experienced players in there but even they couldn't pick up where I was and the advice I'd been given about where I where I moved to before going into a space and the players knew I'd arrive into that area as well and and we had full backs that overlapped we had Tom Jones and and Steve Foley who were just like unbelievable players in terms of knowing what to do at the right time um in, in terms of how we played and we had a freedom about us we had Ross McLaren again sitting at the base who could hit the ball anywhere around the pitch he wanted to and was that protection to allow the and we're talking about things now in 1990, which are now commonplace. We virtually played three at the back. You know, your two centre-halves and Ross McLaren sitting with our two full-backs as high up the pitch as they could go. And Tom Jones and Steve Foley playing inside, me then playing in a gap and trying to find space and and getting on the ball and causing problems. And uh, like I say, I watched the goal uh, against Sunderland and I find myself in the spot we'd worked on all season to get into and the pass to go into and uh, managed to go on and hit the shot and it goes in. So uh, as much as people say, oh, it took a deflection. Well, you've got to get in that position first. You've got to find the space first. You've got to have the, the balls to go on and hit the shot. And then poor old Chalky that night, uh, that day, and, and Duncan couldn't hit a cow's ass with a banjo. So I managed to hit the shot and it, it's gone in. But in all truth, you know, if anyone's seen the clip recently, I mean, it could have been eight, it could have been eight nil. Yeah. And should have been 8-0. It was, it, it was a wonderful game. I think it topped it all off, really. And again, and, and credit to the Sunderland fans. I remember them clapping us coming down, uh, down back down towards the tunnel area, the ones that were left, because they they knew, you know, that they'd been well and truly outplayed that day. But Aussie brought a different style, a different mentality, and he gave you an inner belief. And the thing for me that stood out more than anything, even if he didn't think you were a good player, he made you feel like you're a good player, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the things I was warned about was don't call it a deflection. And <laughs> No, it's not a deflection. It's a shot that hit another person on, on the way. But no, yeah, it's amazing how people want to, oh, it's a deflection. You know, well, it went in the back of the bloody net at the end of the day. And we should have been, I'd have been more than happy for Chalky to score or Duncan to score that day and whatever. But it was a little bit of fortune that we needed. It cemented the day, really, and obviously particularly for me, yeah. I mean, it didn't doesn't have to go into the net in the top corner. I scored enough of them. I scored over 100 goals in my career. So, But that one at Wembley, when you're a kid and you've been to United and you've got rejection, you get accepted, you're standing watching the players train at, 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 you know, at, at, at Platt Lane and Manchester Man City players and you're watching different teams and you get chances, you get rejections and, and, and you get people saying you're driftwood. And uh, which is fine. Everyone's got an opinion, um, but they don't know the journey you've been on. And uh, you know, to hit the shot, and he probably would have saved it. I've got no doubt about he had a that. Good game, Tony Norman, didn't he? He was fantastic. He was he was fantastic on the day. But my point is, we worked all season for me to get in those positions to be able to get that shot off, and to be able to create an opportunity for Steve White or Duncan Duncan Shearer, which I would thread to them or someone else would. So it wasn't as if it was a fluke of nature that we got in that position. It was it was something that as a team we'd worked 
to get in those positions and get me in those positions uh, in between the back four and the midfield too. And they just couldn't live with us on that day. And people always struggled with us playing against us because they'd never encountered it before. And that was the beauty of Aussie as well. We were playing something that was completely against the grain from the conforming to your 4-4-2, your 4-4-2. It was something different and uh, it relied on him being able to relay that information to us and then more importantly the players being able to take it on board and and run with it which we did which was fantastic and the disappointing thing for me on that day more than anything was going up the steps and I'm thinking okay where's my medal is he going to put it over my neck in a minute and I was third thinking well Colin didn't get anything Colin gets a trophy and holds it up in the air and I'm I'm looking anxiously down but I think the the medals were shoved back under the earth back under the table because um I think if Sunderland would have gone up to, and won won the day, I'm pretty sure they'd have got medals over the neck. And that's the one thing that's always stuck in my craw, really, about Swindon. I thought at some point they would have commissioned something for us. And I'm not talking nowadays, obviously, but I certainly thought at that point they might have, obviously, the demotion became, came afterwards. But And I know maybe finances were short, but I'm sure Don Rogers' shop could have come up with something for us as a token gesture <laughs> if they'd have asked Don to get us a medal of some description to, to say something. But we got absolutely sweet FA from it, apart from just the trophy that we lifted. But at least we said we were there. At least we said we'd gone to Blackburn and and and, and Steve Foley. I don't know if anyone's seen the goal uh, at Blackburn that he scored. Yeah. Uh, it was amazing. So for us to go the whole season and get promotion, although it taken away from us, was um, was was fantastic. Do you think there were medals then? Do you think there, there was this sort of, oh, Swindon weren't supposed to win this? This has yeah. caused a bigger headache. Well, well, they actually knew beforehand. And I know that on good authority because God rest his soul, I spoke to Jim Smith, who was the Newcastle manager at the time. And they obviously played Sunderland in the, in, in, in the semi-final. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, they, they knew then that if Swindon would have... Obviously, I think what's happened is the information they had and whatever course of action they, they took, they actually took a gamble. Oh, well, there's four teams involved in this. What's the chances? Well, I'm going to have to gamble that Swindon don't make it and don't get to the final and don't win it. And unfortunately, it backfired on them. Instead of being making the decision beforehand, uh, they didn't, um, because it was ongoing anyway, wasn't it? Yeah. So they, yeah. made, they, they, they took the ultimate chance, and, and unfortunately, we, we managed to um, um, yeah, make it life difficult. But it, it certainly wouldn't surprise me. I don't know about the medals being under there. I'm assuming, and I'm, I was hoping for a medal. We, we must be the only team that's ever gone up and not received a medal at Wembley for winning promotion of some description. I imagine it back in the 60s and 70s or whatever, if that was the case, but it wasn't playoffs then. So I've been trying to see whether the year before us, they actually got anything or not, or whether I'm just talking nonsense. The scandal of the season, I mean, what people that weren't around at that time don't really realise is the, the, the news reports happen like at the start of the season, don't they? So the people publish their their story right as the season starts. So it's not something that's that's, you know, brand new and fresh. It's it's always sort of lingered over the season. But the very thought, and I have spoken to a few of your teammates from this time, the the, the thought that they made fans travel to Wembley, put money down for tickets, knowing that they were gonna demote Swindon. It's just remarkable. It is, and um, it, it, again, it's it's unexplainable, really, isn't it? That someone and, and, and some organisation and people within that organisation, dinosaurs, as as I think I 
well, I think I called them that at the time, but I'm calling them now, would let it happen, if that makes sense, because they must have had the information, what they needed to have. They could have made a decision before in the playoffs. They could have made it at the end of the season, the regular season before the playoffs, say, unfortunately, due to the X, Y and Z. Although your season's terminated now, uh, you will be either on appeal staying in this division or you're demoted, whatever they made, but you're not involved in the playoffs. It will go to whoever was whoever finished seventh or whatever. And that then would have alleviated, there would have been a stink and an uproar, but then the club would have had to defend itself, I suppose. But they just took the ultimate gamble and thought, like I said, that we would get past Blackburn and ultimately thought that Newcastle or Sunderland would be better than us on the day because they finished slightly higher than us in the league. Um, but it backfired and painfully so. And all them the fans who were paying on the day, yeah, I mean, if it was now, if it was the social media that, you know, you could vent your through your social media, through the, the website, through any forms and mediums, really, they'd be all hell to pay. And I remember Jimmy Greaves, didn't he? Uh, yeah. I think Jimmy yeah. had a, a T-shirt on as well, defending Swindon as well. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to go into the, the politics of what happened or whatever, because that's that's old ground, really. But yeah. for me to personally to play 60-odd games that season and for it to accumulate in a, a Wembley appearance and accumulate in nothing at the end of it in terms of uh, club-wise uh, was, was, was so disappointing in the crosses from the left and the right-hand side. Here's McLaughlin. McLaughlin to try a shot. It's off Gary Bennett, and that is the opening goal. Alan McLaughlin. We'll take a slight detour now, because one of the plus sides of this magnificent season for you is Jack Charlton uh, notices you. He's going on his, uh, you know, granny rule, whatever you like to call it, but he was known to look around England and find people with Irish heritage. I mean, McLaughlin, he didn't have to look very hard for you. But in the in the later stages of the season, you start to play a B international, I think. And then there's a World Cup coming up. Three years ago, you were in a, in a game where where a player got bit by a dog and now suddenly <laughs> you go into Italia 90. And there can be no better consolation and no better reward for a good season than going to a World Cup, right? No, yeah, I mean, again, amazing. It was uh, I, I got the phone call uh, the night before the, the, the Wembley game against Sunderland. We were in the hotel in London, uh, just by Wembley Stadium, and the uh, phone went in my room. I'd played a B international, as you said, and done really well in the game, scored the equaliser. We actually played against the Arsenal back four that day. It was uh, Arsenal's back four, uh, but it was, I think it was Dave Besson in net. Uh, but with the Arsenal back four, hell of a team they had. They had a squad of two teams that day, England. And, uh, yeah, we managed to win down at Tur- down at Turner's Cross in Cork. And I wasn't able to play in any further games for Ireland because it, with all the games we were having with Swindon and the playoffs and etc., Ireland had arranged friendlies, but I, I wasn't able to participate because of, obviously, the amount of games we were playing in and the situation at the club where we're trying to get promotion. So... I didn't manage to play, which was disappointing, but I wasn't expecting to be anywhere near the World Cup squad anyway. And um, I um, didn't hear anything from Ireland, really. I couldn't turn up to a game against, I think it was Finland, because we were in the playoffs. And that, I thought, was scupping my chances, really. And then uh, I was in the hotel. And the phone went in the room. I picked up the phone. And it was, um, well, he introduced himself as Maurice Setters, as the... Uh, uh, the assistant manager for Ireland and of course I thought it was one of the lads winding me up uh, he did the usual thing where you tell him to 
I won't swear again, tell them to F off the phone and leave me alone, stop winding me up, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, I put the phone down and then the phone went 30 seconds later and he said, if you put the phone down again, you're not going to the World Cup. I'm being serious. It's more says than the FAI. Jack wants you in the squad for the World Cup. After the game against Sunderland, uh, your flight is booked on the following morning for 12 o'clock from, I think it was Heathrow, and you're flying out to Malta to meet the squad. I mean, I literally, my mouth must have been hanging off the end of the bed. Um, I didn't know what to say. He already spoke to Ozzy, though. So Ozzy was already aware of that. And uh, literally, I got off the phone, stood there in disbelief, picked up the phone, phoned my mum and dad from the hotel and told them, you know, I can't, you know, they were obviously, they couldn't speak either. And the next thing, there's a knock at the door and it's Ozzy and he's got a bottle of champagne and he's got four glasses. And there was him, Colin, I think uh, Ross was stood there, so he's forgiven me for calling him fat, which was nice. And uh, uh, Fraser was in the room as well, so we all had a glass of champagne, just the one glass, and uh, said well done and toasted it, and that was it. And then it was just a matter of getting my mum and dad to drive from Manchester to Swindon, uh, leave a bit earlier, go to my house, pack a case for me so I don't have to do it in the morning. And my mind just sort of like was just... Well, obviously on the Swindon game, but on, my God, I've gone to the World Cup. You know, I couldn't quite believe it. But I didn't understand the circumstances around why I was going. And that was that was for later on uh, in, in terms of a decision he made about um, Gary Waddock, who he put in the provisional squad. He decided uh, after uh, training and games to change that, uh, obviously, to me. And then to go on the next day, obviously, uh, and, and, and us win. And, and we score the goal as well at Wembley. That obviously um, was a helping factor as well. But... Yeah, so I'm interviewed after the game at Wembley. I can't then go to, there's a bit of a celebration back at Swindon at the hotel. I have to go home because I've got to get myself sorted. And I missed out on that. And I missed out the next day, which is a bit disappointing on the little bus parade around Swindon. But uh, I, I had a good excuse anyway. I was I was making myself, making my way to the World Cup with just no expectation about anything really. And little did I know I'd participate in two games and come on in the England game. Against Brian Robson. Against Brian Robson, my hero, and I was thinking, all I kept thinking of myself during the game was, well, obviously, the excitement of it, but it crossed my mind, I need to get his shirt at the end of the game, I need to get his shirt at the end of the game, and um, unfortunately, I didn't get his shirt, I got Chris Waddles, but, um, which was still fine, but uh, I remember England changing their formation uh, to, uh, obviously, they, they obviously had some information on me, and they brought Steve McMahon on. And uh, I don't know if you remember, but Steve McMahon ended up losing the ball in the end of his box because I ended up just coming on and just every time the ball went forward, I went forward. And if if you anyone ever wants to take the time to to look at the, the action of Kevin Sheedy's goal, I'm about a yard offside. So as he strikes it, I'm in the middle of the goal. Technically now, um, you'd argue whether I was interfering with the goalkeeper, but back in those days, uh, yeah. So I was just a yard offside and I was so relieved when I wheeled away to see I wasn't offside and then went and celebrate with my new teammates. I'd known them about three weeks at this point. But I, d- I didn't get the, the best reception when I went because they were obviously very close to Gary Waddock. And yeah. I, got the, I got a bit of a cold shoulder from one or two uh, at the time, uh, which wasn't my fault. And I had to go and confront them and say, well, you know, you're going to have to get over yourselves really, lads, because it's got nothing to do with me. I didn't realise this situation, you know. But it was typical FAI, really. Didn't really plan things too well. But Jack changed his mind and... And I reaped the benefits, and it was a, a real shame for Gary. Yeah, you have a decade-long, you know, throughout the nineties, you're in and around the Republic of Ireland squad. Throughout your your career, 
And of course, you go to USA 94, but I don't think you play, do you? But you do score no. the goal that gets them there in that night. At, um, it's the, the battle of the two ex-Swindon players, isn't it? Because Jimmy Quinn scores what he thinks is the winner. And then a few minutes later, you, you get the equaliser. And again, these moments, I mean... Ironically, um, Jimmy was here at Swindon when I came. Yeah. And he, he was fantastic to me. Uh, you know, we didn't care whether we were... Catholic, Protestant, or anything. We were just two lads playing football. But he looked after me, and uh, as did Dave Hockaday. But Jimmy, I'd go round to his house because he knew I was in digs by myself. Um, and he, he would write me, invite me round for, for dinner, Sunday dinner, or we'd go playing snooker. And uh, yeah, it was an amazing coincidence then years later that I actually come onto the pitch. He was um, come onto the pitch at Windsor Park, actually. And Jimmy scores an absolutely fantastic goal, and it get it gets lost in the in the context of the game. It yeah. was probably one of the best goals, international goals he'd scored in terms of build-up play. Uh, it was a lovely little setback to him, and uh, it was a brilliant strike. Paki Bono had no chance, and I remember as it went in, throwing my hands to my head, thinking, "Well, you know, I'd just been on the pitch three minutes, and suddenly I'm on the pitch. He's taken off Ray Hout. We've taken off Ray Hout, and I've gone on there, and um, they've scored." So is that a reflection of me? Is it, you know, and then you're thinking, oh, but they did. They, they made a tactical error. There was a, a, a free kick on the on the far side, and there was only Dennis on the ball. And they had two players out there for some bizarre reason. They put two players out, like trying to block uh, a wide, virtually a corner. And they made a real, they made a real hash of that, really. And I ended up being on the edge of the box free, and uh, it came out to me and I scored. But my time with Ireland. Um, over the 10-year period, getting 42 caps, you know, was the most successful, apart from 88, was the most successful period in, you know, Ireland's football history. And when you've got the likes of Roy Keane, Paul McGrath played in midfield, Ronnie Whelan, um, Ray Houghton, Steve Staunton, uh, John Sheridan, to name but a few, Kevin Sheedy, you know, just to be a part of that squad over a period of time and to be selected... Uh, I was selected ev- into every squad for the nine and nine and a half years I was there. I, I was selected for every squad, and that included Jack Charlton and Mick McCarthy. And that I'm really proud of as well. There's a few facts I am proud of, and that is one of them, uh, that I, I made every squad. Because, again, when you've got the likes again, then Roy Keane coming into the equation, etc. You know, you're talking world-class players. And uh, to be in and around it was great. And to be selected week in, you know, month in, month out was, was brilliant. Not always playing. But it wasn't about that. It was about turning up and being deemed good enough to be involved in this group of sometimes world-class players and uh, immensely proud of my achievements to last so long with them. And uh, to top it off, that goal, you know, stands out in Irish history as one of the, the key moments with Paki Bonasseg, Jason McAteer's goal, Ray Houghton's two goals against, one against England and then against Italy. So it's, it's up there with them. And again, that, that, that comes from a period, like, like you say, from absolutely nothing, from playing in a game a few years before that, when, when the dog bites Jim McNichol to, for me being called Driftwood, which I, will stick with me and it always has done, uh, to be out there was, was, was just amazing. And to continue my career, and play as long as I did uh, and be in, in, represent uh, Ireland for was was huge and uh, that was that was a lot of it and the main lot of it was down to the fact that I started my career properly at Swindon under two fabulous managers that's what we like to hear that last bit lovely stuff so I mean because of all this 
was it inevitable, regardless of what Swindon were going to do in 1990-91, was it inevitable that you would be leaving at some point over the season or at least at the end of the 91 season? Yeah, I was told pretty quickly, uh, coming back to pre-season, I, I actually came back uh, and had an operation. I had um, a double hernia mm. uh, and that, that took a month to, to heal up. But, you know, after speaking to Ozzy and the way the club we knew financially now were struggling, that a player would go. And uh, he was very upfront with me. He said, you you are the most likely player to leave. And uh, he did a, a brilliant thing for me. I, I wasn't on brilliant money at Swindon at the time, although obviously it increased significantly from my £20 pay rise from when I first arrived. But uh, he, he doubled my wages and he, he did that and insisted on that to happen because he felt that would put me in a better position when I went to another club, uh, which he forewarned would happen. He said, you're the most saleable asset we've got. Uh, if you're here by the end of the season, I'll be very surprised. The club is struggling. So I want to try and help you out. The club should help you out because you're coming a free transfer and, you, and, and you're going to go for big money. And uh, I wasn't going to refuse that. Um, I'd worked really hard, like I said, 60 games. I was progressing. Always gave 100% and I thought it was the right thing. And they thankfully agreed to it. Although when I left, there was a little bit of discontent from one or two of the board members because I actually asked for what I was due really because I was due a little bit of money from them. Uh, they were about to get a million pounds and uh, Aussie again, very good, stepped in, knew, knew the players and said, well, if you don't give it to him, then he'll uh, he'll just he'll just put his kit back on and go back downstairs. Because you, you don't have to accept the transfer, if that makes sense. Yeah. And Aussie yeah. wasn't not going to play me. So it was something that was always going to happen. So I felt I deserved that, um, particularly, like I said, signed, I mean, loose, you know, sign on a free transfer and you end up you know, be sold for a million pound. Pick somebody out. Far post for Shearer. Goal! Yes! Wonderful goal all the way from the moment that Hazard picked him out. What happens next? It's quite funny, and I think a lot of people outside of the rivalry forget this, but, you I mean, you are, you know, there's no doubt about it, you are a Portsmouth legend, but before that, there was a year and a bit with Southampton, wasn't there? Um... I mean, you got back to the first division, which is, I think that's one of the reasons Eric Harrison sent you a letter as well. And, you know, it's the only season that you have in the first division, other than there's a loan spell at Aston Villa. It doesn't really, it doesn't really get going, does it, before you go to Portsmouth? So again, I mean, 1990, 91, you must look back at them two years and think, wow, I did so I did so much, like a career's worth in about 12 months. Yeah, it was. And uh, there were some options with that. I, I believe Leeds and Sheffield Wednesday were also in the frame to sign me, but Southampton came up with the, the figure of a million pound. Uh, I actually went to see Chris Nichol on the, the Tuesday in Southampton. And um, he, as all managers do, and I mentioned it before with Cyril Knowles, they'll blow smoke up your backside, tell you, you know, I was playing again behind the front two. I was told I would be playing by the, behind the front two on Saturday against Aston Villa. You know, we're not spending a million pounds without you playing in your rightful position, yada, yada, yada. And it was all music to my ears and obviously getting a good contract and signing on fee and the club Swindon being left in a, a great position in terms of finances now. So I felt happy about the situation. I wasn't too far from, from, from Swindon as well. And they were in the first division uh, where I rightfully was hoping to be with Swindon, but that didn't happen. So it all fell into place. And I signed on the Wednesday, trained on the Thursday and was told I'd be playing left midfield in a four four two, 4 2 Virtue's a left winger and uh, on the Saturday. And 
obviously I couldn't say too much at that time. I couldn't be going knocking his door and saying, well, what the hell? You, you told me Tuesday I was playing there. So I was, I'd say sold down the river a bit, but I was, I, I played virtually the end of the season then. That was December, but I played every game as a left winger. I managed 25 games, I think, and I scored one goal at Man City. But I was doing the providing. I was crossing the ball. I was, ironically, I scored my only goal for Southampton at, at, uh, at Main Road, which was ironic. But um, yeah, I was very disappointed uh, with the way things were going on there in terms of, and I went to eventually go and see Chris Nichol after about six or seven games. And I just politely said, look, you know, I was hoping to play, you know, where you offered a million pounds for me you, you've said you're going to play me there you've paid a million pounds can I play where I'm supposed to play and he said oh that'll be next season now if he'd have told me that at the time in December I wouldn't have signed I'd have seen what you know Sheffield Wednesday were about or seen what Leeds were about uh, because I wouldn't have mind if he said to me look you know you, you're going to play left wing or we're going to play in midfield you've got to fight for your place then it was up to me but yeah, that so that was a bit disappointing so it's sort of like it, it, it felt wrong but then, then, one, then when he he got the sack in the um, he got the sack in the uh, in the summertime, and Ian Bramford came in. Now Ian Bramford came in and convinced Southampton Football Club that they were going to change their footballing style and uh, to be more direct. And uh, he brought the likes of uh, Kerry Dixon, David Speedy, uh, Terry Herlock in. So you imagine where we're going with this. It's got a completely different ethos, and Matt Letizia wasn't certainly going to figure in his plans and it was literally ball to the fullback uh, you know ball forward as quick as it could I was used to that but I was also used to playing a different way with Aussie and the reason they signed me was because I could find space score goals etc I'd done it to him down at the Dell so uh, disappointing and I eventually was walking through the street uh, through Swindon I was in the and I bumped into I think it was Gary Herbert walking through town one day and uh, it was a Wednesday and I was off and I wasn't anywhere near the team, wasn't playing. I think I'd only been involved twice as a substitute. Mm. And it was now we're coming into late September, early October time. And we bumped into each other and I just said, he asked how I was getting on. I said, oh, I don't know. I said, I can't even get near the team. But the ironic thing, I was still being selected for the Republic of Ireland, even though playing for Southampton Reserves, which was a bit, it was a bit daft. And uh, he said, oh, uh, how many games have you played? I said, oh, about 25, 26 he went, oh, they always 300,000 when you get to 30 games. Yeah. So then it dawned on me the reason why I wasn't playing. It wasn't to do with the fact I wasn't able to or capable of playing. The fact that the new management had come in, I didn't fit the style of profile of player they wanted. And they were trying to obviously not pay out 300 grand to Swindon after after 30 games. So um, I, I knocked the door the next day and we had a stand-up argument. Uh, I think a compromise was made with Swindon in the end. Uh, I don't think they got the four million pounds, but they certainly got near to it. But unfortunately, that was that was it for me. The trust had gone. I ended up being yeah. sub a couple of times. Then I was subbed up when it was sorted out against Spurs and came on. But no, it filtered away. And, and again, at that point, then it was the first time I'd really got into a, a a point where I was not happy with the situation, not happy with the manager lying to me for you know just be honest. You know, just say, look, you're not going to play. These are the reasons why we'll look to get something sorted. But I was very unlucky, actually. You did mention Aston Villa. I went to Aston Villa on loan and uh, I joined 
again, ironically, it was Ron Atkinson. Yep. Ironically, yep. the guy who would be the person that didn't vote for me was now uh, working at Aston Villa, and he was the guy that picked me up. So I reminded him about my million-pound move. I reminded him about my World Cup appearances. I reminded him about scoring at Wembley. So uh, he had a bit of a squirmy ride to uh, take me to take me to body uh, to take me to the training ground. But I was a bit unlucky because um, Deadly Doug, um, the fees had been agreed with. Uh, yeah, Deadly Doug, uh, Doug Ellis, had, the fees had been agreed with Southampton, and I got to the very last Saturday. And unfortunately, while I was there, Villa were doing brilliantly. They were near the top of the uh, as it was first division. I arrived on the Thursday. It was the same team on the Saturday, no injuries. The same the following week. There's no injuries and they'd won. So Ron was very good and explained the situation. He said, it's not going to make a difference on my decision to sign you or not. And I ended up playing against Coventry in like a Data Zenith Cup game uh, just before we went on international break week. And then I was sub against Wimbledon uh, just prior to, to um, the end of my month. And uh, Ron wanted to sign me. Unfortunately, uh, Doug Ellis decided he was going to sign two German players for the same amount of money. Yeah. So he pulled the deal. So that scuppered my move to Villa, which ironically then wouldn't have meant me going to Portsmouth. But uh, I did take the decision eventually and Portsmouth paid the money uh, that Southampton wanted, uh, which was over 400 grand. And uh, I signed for them, uh, knowing very well what I was about to let myself in for. <laughs> As much as I would love to talk about your your years at Portsmouth, we, we simply don't have the time. But there are things that stand out for me, particularly. It's very early on. I remember watching that semi-final against Liverpool vividly. Um, uh, the windy day, well, there was certainly loads of ticker tape sort of blowing yeah. around. The late goal that Anderton scored and then the later equaliser by Ronnie Whelan when John Barnes has that free free kick hit the post, which is which I don't know why it just sticks in my memory so much. And then of course yeah. the following year, 92, 93, where really of course Swindon go up, but I mean, was it plus six goal difference? you miss out on six goals? You level on points with West Ham. And that was such a great opportunity for Portsmouth, wasn't it? Unless you've got the league. T- have you got the stats I, there with I you? Don't know. No. Okay. But I think it was even tighter than that. I think oh. it was one goal. I think there was just one goal between us. Again, I moved from you know a fantastic side in Swindon, uh, which for me is the best Swindon town. And like I said, I've watched Swindon town virtually every season since, really. But like I said, the, the team I played in, and I know I'm biased, is the best Swindon town mm-hmm. football side I've, I've, I've played in. Uh, but then to move to Portsmouth with um, the likes of Paul Walsh, uh, Guy Whittingham, Mark Chamberlain, uh, your young Kit Simons, uh, Warren Neal we had a really good team and we we finished way ahead of Swindon uh, as well which, which does happen um, but again we missed out if I'm right by a single goal to West Ham uh, West Ham on the last game of the season were playing Cambridge who were already relegated and we were playing Grimsby we beat Grimsby 3-1 and West Ham I think 1-2-1 or something daft like that uh, and Swindon cleverly played their weakest team they could so they avoided us um, last game of the season I'm not sure who they played but I know it was a team that wasn't going to win the game anyway to make sure they finished um, in fourth place uh, fourth or fifth place whichever it worked out but that's the way you do it that's fine but yeah really disappointing uh, to miss out then because we were again a fantastic side and Guy Whittingham scored 49 goals that year I got double figures and, and Paul got Paul Walsh got double figures over double figures as well so a very good team and to miss out 
And ironically, when we played Leicester home and away, we got beat at Nottingham Forest ground, believe it or not. We didn't play at Leicester's ground because their ground was being redeveloped. Mm. And we lost 1-0. Julian Jochim scored in the last five minutes. And then we came back to Fratton Park and I equalised and there was a bit of a dodgy goal by Ian Ormond-Rod, which everyone claims in Portsmouth is offside, but I still can't make my mind up. So we missed out. But we had two significant players missing on the day. That was Guy Butters, the centre-half, and Paul Walsh, who'd got sent off uh, at Sunderland a few games before the end of the season and missed the playoffs. So that was a massive blow for us. And I actually remember going to Highworth on the, the, the afternoon of the Swindon-Leicester game because... In one way, I was slightly relieved that I didn't have to play Swindon in the final because that would have been quite an awkward one for me. Obviously, with my wife being from Swindon and me living back at Swindon at the time, if I'd have managed to score the winning goal <laughs> against uh, Swindon, it wouldn't have been great. But um, but I took myself off to Highworth, to the to the nine-hole course there and played and I didn't listen to anything and it wasn't until I got back in the car that I'd, I'd heard that Swindon had won. So... In one way, I was pleased to win. In another way, I was gutted because we hadn't achieved what we wanted to achieve. So, yeah, it was a quite a difficult season. And again, lots of games played that season with a really good team and Fratton Park bouncing along with eighteen and 19,000 fans as well. So, yeah, disappointed. But I had, a, I had a lovely stretch at Portsmouth. I really did and enjoyed the city, enjoyed the uh, Fratton Park, enjoyed playing there, enjoyed Unfortunately for Swindon fans, scoring lots of goals oh, against. Oh my goodness! Well, I was gonna, I was gonna say that was my <laughs> next. Fraser, not gonna be <laughs> I was gonna say my next observation was that this is when you know I'm a Swindon fanatic. You know, young young guy, um, young kids, 12, 13, 14, 15. and what I remember of Alan McLaughlin is being a giant pain in Swindon's backside. <laughs> for for well, I actually about... enjoyed being a pain. Yeah, I actually enjoyed being a pain. I remember the four three? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it was part and parcel of it. I mean, now that you know, they'd be all apologising to the fans for scoring. No, don't worry about I mean, it. All this nonsense. I mean, Swindon. I didn't have to prove anything to Swindon fans. They knew I loved playing for Swindon. You know, it gave me my platform. It gave, it gave me everything. But I was now employed by Portsmouth. Well, you know, I'm doing a job there. I've got to score goals, and I enjoyed every goal I scored against anybody. But again, particularly against your old team, you enjoy it a little bit more if that makes sense, I scored. Yeah. I remember scoring, at, uh, we won 1-0 at, uh, at the county ground and it was on. It was a midweek game. And I remember Steve McMahon moaning after the game saying, oh, the goal was offside, the goal was offside. He was talking out of his backside. I've seen the goal about 10 times and, and about a yard onside because he's his own... His own players won't admit actually I played you on, so they say no. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm saying my lads don't lie. Of course they lie. Who's going to argue with Steve McMahon in the dressing rooms? Put his hand up and say, well, oh yeah, I played him on gaffer. So I had all this stuff, but uh, no, I enjoyed the, the challenge of playing against um, Swindon. Um, like I enjoyed the challenge, and I only managed it once against Southampton. Unfortunately, lost, which 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 wasn't great, but it's just all. It's just the way it is because I want to go back and show John Trollope that I'm still a good player. I want to go back and show the Swindon fans I'm still a good player. I'm not a has-been. But ironically then, I had the chance to come back uh, just before I retired. But uh, although I did play a couple of reserve games, uh, it was when Roy Evans was in charge and he wanted me to sign. Mm. I just didn't didn't sit right with me because physically I wasn't in a great place. I had terrible problems with my back right, right at the last knockings of my career. I, I ended up with a prolapse disc and it just wouldn't have sat right because I was a completely different player then. I couldn't get around the pitch like I used to do. And I just felt it would have, they would have looked at me in a completely different way and gone, well, 
he's not doing what he used to do. Well, no, I'm 34 now, nearly 35. I can't, but it just didn't sit right with me. And I, I declined the offer in the end um, and decided to take the option, although not Swindon and a bit strange, but I took my last six months offer to work with John Hollins at um, Rochdale yeah. because it pained me a little bit. Although I was living in, in the town, it pained me a little bit that I would be playing and not be the person or the player that they'd previously seen. Yeah, that, that's fair enough. And uh, there have been cases over the years where players have gone back and it, it's not the same. And at the moment, it's kind of been myth-busted by, by Paul Caddis, hasn't it? Who is only, you know, only 32 and he's a very fit guy. But the fact that he's come back this season and... Absolutely... He's come back into a good team, hasn't he? Exactly, you know, exactly. Yeah, it's different coming back into a Joe Average team, which it was at the time, if that makes sense, with some really... You know, not great players and a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes, etc., which weren't which weren't fantastic. So it just didn't feel right. And I just, uh, but certainly for Paul Caddis, I think he's been uh, immense since he's come back. The games I've managed to see, because obviously sometimes it's difficult with the under 18s fixtures, we don't get back in time. But he brings an air of calmness and and uh, quality to the team. And again, more than anything, he stepped into a, a side that's doing well. It's always difficult and you probably don't perform as well when you're spending most of your time on the back foot defending. Yeah. In in, in the final stages of a career, obviously you play for Wigan, Rochdale, and then you, you finish up at Forest Green Rovers. At what point are you, because you work within local media for Portsmouth and you've done Swindon as well, and you're coaching now. What were what was the goal for you when you were winding down your career? When you were working alongside John Hollins, was that when you were beginning to really look into the coaching element? Yeah, well, John, the reason why John asked me to go was because he was thinking about the next season. Um, he asked me whether I could come along to Rochdale and try and propel them into the playoff positions. They'd never, ever been off there. They'd never been there before. And thankfully, we managed that. And unfortunately, we lost out to uh, Russian and Diamonds in, in, in the playoffs uh, and, and didn't manage to get to Wembley. But he wanted me to be there the following season to assist him and, and help him uh, move things along. Unfortunately, the chairman, after John got the club, the Rochdale into, into the first time they'd ever got in the playoffs, decided he wasn't the man for them and appointed uh, Paul Simpson. So that sort of like scuppered that and, and I headed home um, and decided to, because it, it's very hard to hang your boots up. Mm. You always think you've got one more season in you. You always think you've got 30, 40 more games and you're in the thrill of scoring another goal, etc. But um I was kidding myself to thinking that I could get back to full fitness. And again, it led to my disc prolapsing, which wasn't pleasant. And um, lots of time laying down on the floor for weeks on end and, and getting myself right. But um, yeah, I think the years and, and, and the toll of the 600-odd games were starting to, to, to take its toll physically. But mentally, you still think you're in the game. But unfortunately, you're not. I think mentally, for me, everything died in terms of my real drive moving forward was when I left um, Portsmouth and went to Wigan, which I didn't want to leave Portsmouth. But again, they got 260 grand for a nearly 34-year-old and a Milan manager at the time used them funds to sack Alan Ball and Kevin Bond and the staff to bring in his own people, which was fine. But um, obviously I had different reasons for doing it. There's Again, you have to be selfish at this point. There's a bit of a pay rise and I'm nearly 35. And the last thing I, I'll be honest, wanted to do was head up to Wigan. But it meant I could stay with my mum and dad, um, which which was nice. So I spent 18 months there, but it just wasn't right. I just didn't feel, you know, again, you're starting, as any pro will tell you, once you get to 34 and you've been in it since you're 16, uh, as much as you've got enthusiasm in your head for it, your body's starting to tell you different things. And it, it was becoming 
evidently more difficult. And eventually I ended up at Forest Green and tried my best, but I think I only managed about 10 games. And uh, I remember jogging around the pitch and um, at Forest Green before it had been redeveloped and came out of the, the little tunnel they used to have us there. And I got halfway around and decided that was it. I My career was over. I walked across the pitch, walked in, said to the physio, thanks for everything you've done and, and just called it a day. I realised at that point I just couldn't just couldn't physically carry on. I was mentally gone at that point rather than you know, rather than anything else. And I was I was just fighting a losing battle and I was just making myself look more of a, an idiot yeah. rather than being yeah. a, a former uh, international of some repute who now couldn't string two passes together and couldn't get around the pitch, so it was time to call it a day. That brings us now to the the close, really, which is the coaching side. And you've been back at Swindon, what, must be about four years now, is that right? No, it's, it's going to be six years in, six years? Wow, years in January. Runs. My Lord. So, I mean, how how is the project going for you? Because you oversee so so much of Swindon's youth setup, all of it, let's be honest. How How is the project going? Yeah, it's, it's, it's gone really well. Obviously, I didn't expect to be in the academy manager's position uh, when, when Jeremy Newton left. The club approached me and uh, at 51 at the time, it's it was something I'm not going to say no to. Uh, I, I come in initially, Jeremy had me in, I was working, uh, leading the phase as in the under 13s to 16s. So I had experience of that previously from my days at Portsmouth working there in the academy department. And then Scott Lindsay left and, you know, I was asked to do the 18s, which I did for two years, which was which was great. But now I run the academy in terms of being the academy manager. And, yeah, I have lots of, lots of experience in the field. Uh, we, we keep the academy run well in terms of it virtually pays for itself. And it has this year with the sale of a couple of players. And people seem to forget that, you know, they're expecting academy players to swing in town to, to pop up every year and be out playing on the for the first team. You know, we train at Lydia Park School uh, and they've been great to us. But, you know, our facilities are Lydia Park School, New College, thankfully, have got a new facility, which we've incorporated now with the 4G Astro. The Foundation Park is available now to use, which is fantastic. But your best players are sold. So we've got boys that have left the building in the last four years who've gone on to Derby County, Brighton, Chelsea. And they're your best players, which effectively, some of them, uh, i.e. Jaden Bogle, could be affecting the first team now at Swindon, but he was sold on for a profit, as was uh, Jaden Mitchell-Lawson. And there's a couple of boys, a couple of three boys now at Chelsea who've come through, and a boy that's moved on to, to Brighton through our academy. So we have to as it, uh, have it as a working model as well, where it pays for itself virtually every season. That would be something we'd like to get to, but it doesn't always happen every season, but certainly we'd be very productive this season. Uh, and more than anything, we're looking to, and I think our USP, and I've explained it to some of the academy managers that I've met before, and I was chatting to, um, I'm just name dropping here, and I didn't meet, I don't mean to, but on, on a course which has a pair Mertesacker from Arsenal, I was paired up with him, and, you know, 75% of our players come from within the 30, 30 mile radius of, of, of Swindon. And um, that's really important as well that we get local talent in and we try to develop them. I'm very keen also to make sure that if you're a, if you're a, a player that plays for Swindon Town Academy, that you have a 95% chance of getting a contract as a scholar. Yeah. Because I don't look to do what other clubs do and only take three under 16s uh, and import players from 
Aston Villa, Man United, etc., into their academies at, 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 and give them scholarships. If you're a scholar, if you're under 16, you will be considered for a scholarship. So it's a USP that we've got, which he couldn't understand and couldn't get his head around that we only do that. But it's it, it, it'll work sometimes. It'll not work different times. The staff, again, I've got some great staff that we work with. Uh, we try to educate them as much as we can. We focus a lot this year on in, uh, out of possession uh, stuff for the, the coaches. And it's very difficult. You know, we are Category 3 Academy. You know, there are restraints, there are restrictions. You know, we haven't got a training ground, which is our own. So, we're again, you know, you're going around the, the town trying to find different venues to train at. And I'm grateful for everyone out that supports us in terms of the likes of Lydia Park, the likes of Bethersbrook, uh, the likes of, like, again, Foundation Park now is a godsend, uh, and New College, who have been fantastic. So, uh, and Swindon, I mustn't forget them, everyone down at Swindon, that they look after us as well through the winter period with, with the young players. So, we, we hopefully build some good relationships up. But it is difficult. But we like to think if you're in the academy, at Swindon uh, and I think that's the most important thing you're going to be looked after and given the opportunity to be a scholar uh, which doesn't happen of lots of clubs around us who are importing players from different academies uh, i.e. Um, Premier League clubs who release players so I'm, I'm, I'm determined to keep that ethos in place for Swindon yeah. Town's benefit your fellow Mancunian Richie Wellens is in a situation now at time of recording. There's so much indecision about about football, the football league, and what's going to happen. This must surely be a huge opportunity for these young players to be knocking on the door simply because of the financial element that we may encounter within the game after football. Well, once football can start again. Yeah, you'd like to think so, but they still have to be. Um, they still have to be um, capable and able. Listen, we've got eight, and I'm talking the administrator. We've got eight full-time staff in the academy. That's it. Mm. You know, the rest are coaches who work in the day, who sometimes get up at four o'clock in the morning to go off to work and arrive at six o'clock to take the boys training. So, with limited resources, I think we do okay. Obviously, when these players are sent up to Richie Wellens, which there will be some players this year, you know, I think more now, obviously, they need to be technically proficient, which Richie will expect, uh, but they need to be mentally ready. And I think the ethos will change a little bit. Lots of players coming in can be a little bit flaky. Uh, and again, this discarded society, which I do understand and I do recognise, but, you know, these boys have a year to go into that first team environment and really make a difference and really make an impact. Luke Haynes has done it. This year, although not played a first team game, but I'm sh- pretty sure he's made an impact with the group in, in, in what he can do. Um, There's the, the other players, again, that are going to come through now that it's just a flick of the coin. It really is. And sometimes they're unlucky. Sometimes, like myself, if you reflect back on, on my situation, if the team is being really successful, then it's very difficult for them boys to break into that. I hear what you're saying about that we're going to have to rely on maybe younger players. But um, that's something that will that will pan out in the wash because that will be the same for every other team. Uh, it's what you can forge and what you can do with uh, parent clubs to get players in on loan. As we saw the boy from Huddersfield come in, who I thought was um, is it great? Um, yeah. I thought I thought it was very good, and uh, he 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 showed what what can be brought in. But yeah, it'll all pan out in the wash. I don't exactly know exactly where it's going to go, but I'm certainly hopeful that we can get one or two players forward for. Uh, you know, to make some sort of impression. But it's a really tough task when you, you've got really limited resources, eight staff, limited facilities. We haven't got an abundance of 
techniques we can try to improve things you know limited time with the players as well so but we do our best and that's all we can do and if if, we, if somebody can pop their heads up out of the parapet and, and show themselves and being given the opportunity and sometimes you only know how good someone is until you give someone a chance uh, and that's obviously down to the manager uh, and he'll feel it's the right time to do but I'd like to see hopefully uh, one or two players make their debuts next year and try and establish themselves not in any way of 20, 30 games, but, you know, three or four games through a season, five games through a season to, 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 to show some sort of progress, then that, that would be great. This has been incredible and I, and I really thank you for your time. But my, my, my closing question is always, well, it's, it's very common within the conversations that I have here. So when you, when you go past the county ground, when you go into the county ground, you see those floodlights and you look up, what are your memories as a player? What, what immediately comes in? It doesn't necessarily have to be on the field. I think as I turn into the county ground and drive down, I, I just can't believe it, it's the same as it was when I first joined in 86. That lip, you know, opposite the, the cricket ground, opposite mm. the fencing, the facade out the front has changed slightly. But just the makeup of the ground has obviously changed slightly. I remember the old Shrivenham Road side, the stand there and the people at the bottom, we couldn't go up the top. I don't know. It's, it's difficult. It's it's quite comforting, obviously, when you see the, the the lights, you know it's there. I reminisce all the time. My family must get absolutely sick to the death of me, really, uh, reminiscing about bits and bobs. It's nice to be in the ground as well because I work from the ground and work in the ground. And we actually work just by the tunnel. And it's nice to walk out sometimes and just stand at the edge of the pitch, uh, just in my own thoughts about what happened there, that game, what it was like and reminiscing about stuff and it's 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 great to have it close at hand a lot of the lads now have moved away um and the likes of the the lads you're going to speak to have you know come back and see the county ground once in a lifetime maybe he might forget all them little bits he won't forget them but i i can reminisce every day when i go into the ground so that's great and the makeup of the place hasn't changed really at all so in that respect it's great and it's also great for me being a, a former player of 120 odd games and four years here to be back now doing what I'm doing and hopefully developing players uh, with the staff around me for someone else to be stood in 10 years time out there thinking well I've played out there I've made my debut I've come through the ranks and I've done this and that's our ultimate ge- uh, goal but yeah just the fact that I'm in around the ground every day is, is special because I didn't think like I said in it must have been uh, the end of June 86 to think I would still be walking in the door in, in June uh, 2020 so uh, for that, I, I, I thank my blessings. Alan, it's been incredible. Thank you very much. No problem, thank you. I enjoyed it, thanks. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly teaming up with Free for Mental Health Awareness Week this year. As football fans, we often pride ourselves on knowing everything, from which substitution can turn the game around to the quickest route home to beat the crowds. However, when it comes to discussing feelings with our friends, we might not always feel as confident. That's why we're here to equip you with the right tools so you can reach out to those who can help. If your mates are struggling, let them know that the Samaritans are free to call on 116123. That's 116123. They are there to listen without judgment or pressure. 
24 7 365 days of the year let's all take a moment to talk more than football hi ls pod fans it's jr here if swindon players were mcdonald's items who would they be we've had lots of big macs like the legendary alan mclaughlin harry mccurdy or even Steve McMahon. Perhaps you'd prefer to channel the power of McPlant like Darren Ward, or maybe five chicken selects, one to enjoy for each time Ben Gladwin joined. Yep, there's one spare, but there's still time. And you don't need super scouts or data solutions to get your hands on any of these. McDelivery through the McDonald's app brings them all to you. At participating restaurants, 18 plus. Serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. 